optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're just in a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is always my job to tease out the habits, routines, philosophies, favorite books, etc., from world-class performers, so you can test each of those in your own life. And guests range from, say, those in business, sports, military, all the way to the esoteric, and sometimes the very unexpected. And this guest checks a lot of boxes. His name is Nick Sabo. That's S-Z-A-B-O. Many of you may not recognize his name, but hopefully by the end, you'll want to know everything that he puts out and read every essay that he <laughs> puts on the internet. He is a polymath. The breadth and depth of his interests and knowledge are truly astounding, and I mean jaw-dropping. It's, it's just beyond belief what this guy can cover. He's a computer scientist, legal scholar, and cryptographer best known for his pioneering research in digital contracts and cryptocurrency. And I've long been fascinated by cryptocurrency, but secretly not really understood anything about it, or certainly the subtleties. 
And this episode is really a masterclass. And we go from the very, very basic all the way up to the cutting edge and what the future holds. Nick, for instance, developed the phrase and concept of smart contracts with the goal of bringing what he calls the highly evolved practices of contract law and practice to the design of electronic commerce protocols between strangers on the internet. Nick also designed BitGold, which many consider the precursor to Bitcoin. This particular conversation is co-hosted by one of my favorite people, Naval Ravikant, a mutual friend and one of the most successful investors in Silicon Valley, who also happens to be one of Nick's biggest admirers. And uh, for those who enjoy Naval here, you may also enjoy his first episode with me from 2015, which was voted on Product Hunt, the second best podcast episode of the year across all podcasts, with the exception of my Jamie Foxx episode. So you can listen to that if you like. It's called the Evolutionary Angel episode, tim.blog forward slash Naval. But let's get back to how much we cover with Nick, because it's a lot. And you need not be intimidated. You don't need to be a computer scientist. I am not. You don't need to know anything about currency. I know very little. But we get into the history of money. We talk about Bitcoin, what it is, what cryptocurrencies are, and what problems they solve. We define social scalability. What is that and why is it important? What is Ethereum? What makes it unique? Strengths and weaknesses. We talk about different types of cryptocurrencies. We talk about things called, for instance, altcoin. What the hell is that? We get into it. What are ICOs, initial coin offerings? We talk about who might invest or not invest. And certainly this is not investment advice. It's for informational purposes only. So talk to your financial professional before allocating resources or money anywhere. Okay, cover my ass. Good. How will smart contracts actually get adopted or go mainstream? Right. If you think of, say, Bitcoin as something that is very fringe, when will it hit the tipping point? What might the elements be that would lead to that? Blockchain governance. Is there any existential risk? Could governments or regulators shut down something like Bitcoin? What is wet code versus dry code? This is a super, super cool distinction that I really enjoyed. What are Pascal's scams or quantum thought? We dig into all sorts of nooks and crannies, including what Nick might work on in the future. What fields does he want to explore and so on? So this was, to me, a really, really fun and mind-expanding conversation. You do not need to be technical or an engineer to enjoy it and get a lot out of it because at the core, we are really looking at how two people who are very, very smart, meaning Nick and Naval, process the world, what lenses they use to view the world, and how that dictates their actions and how they get better results. So if you want more from Nick, and we'll talk about this at the very end of the conversation also, but you have to check out the essays on his blog, which is called Unenumerated. It's unenumerated.blogspot.com. But that can wait for later. And then you will know why many of the thought leaders in Silicon Valley and around the world really pay a lot of attention to Nick. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Nick Sabo. All right, gentlemen, I think the hour has arrived. Naval, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back once again. <laughs> Nick, pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you. And I'm very excited and also intimidated by the conversation we're about to have as context for people listening. We're going to delve into some subjects I have an acute interest in, but uh, extreme ignorance of. <laughs> so I will let Naval do a lot of the driving. And I figured a place 
we could start is at the beginning, at least where you guys met. So how did you two first connect? Yeah, like most of my uh, close relationships these days, I formed them on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, I think of Twitter as the place where I go to to have a great conversation when I can't have one locally, which seems to be all the time. And the more time that I spend on Twitter, the more I sort of curate this incredible group of very intelligent people that I just get to know uh, purely through the quality of their thoughts. Um, and so I think uh, when I was getting into cryptocurrencies and blockchains, uh, doing my homework on it, I stumbled across uh, a blog called Unenumerated. Um, and maybe Nick can go into what the origins of that word are, but uh, it was obviously written by a polymath, someone who wrote about everything. I got into the blog and then I started following the author, which was Nick on Twitter, retweeted a few of his tweets and got into little bite-sized 160 character conversations. And here we are. How has how that relationship developed? In other words, how are we here today? And you could take a stab at that. Yeah, Nick's going to do plenty of talking, so we can certainly have him chime in. But if you want to, if you want to lead us to how we ended up here today, yeah, I mean, it was just more and more tweeting back and forth, reading Nick's articles. Uh, there's one that he put up recently around social scalability, which I thought was literally mind blowing. Like I thought I knew a lot about cryptocurrencies, but it really just helped me reframe what I knew in a better mental model. Uh, you know how Charlie Munger talks sure. about mental models. So yep. I've actually picked up at least four or five mental models from Nick, which I think is more than I may have from any human being other than Charlie Munger. I was tweeting out sections of that article. Then somebody said, well, Nick and Naval should do a podcast. And I was like, well, they never do a podcast with me. <laughs> and then Nick said, sure, I'll do a podcast. So <laughs> here we are. <laughs> Nick, could you maybe help us with some definitions? So the cryptocurrency, there are a number of other words that are going to come up a lot. And these are words that I feel at many dinner parties in, say, Silicon Valley, people will not ask about because they're afraid they're the only ones at the table who don't actually know how to define it. But since I, I can't play the part of knowing what I don't know in this case, what is cryptocurrency? And how did you become interested in it or start thinking about it? Cryptocurrency, um, as the name suggests, is protected by cryptography. And in particular, the modern cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and Ethereum, so forth, are protected by their integrity is protected by cryptography, a structure called a Merkle tree that you can think of it as a uh, fly getting trapped in amber. You, if you say I shot JFK and then put it through this process of the Merkle tree, putting it on the blockchain, then it's there. You can't, and you've signed it with your with your private key. Then you can't later deny. Oh, I shot, didn't say that. That allows you to like make a statement. You know, I'm paying such and such amount of Bitcoin to somebody else, and then put it there um, after a few cycles called block times, which take about ten minutes each. Um, it gets exponentially more difficult to deny or take back that that this transaction took place. How did you first begin thinking about? this these these types of constructs or any of this really where did the interests begin well we had a, a group called the cypherpunks back in the 1990s um tim may and eric hughes and john gilmore and so forth and uh tim may had so partly this is political that tim may had a a vision of galt's galt's in cyberspace of any of your um, audience or Ayn Rand fans, they'll, oh, yeah. they'll recognize the reference to galt's galt as this place you can go to get away from things and do your business um, without outside interference. In, in the book, that was like a physics fantasy, but Tim goes, well, we have strong cryptography now, so we can do that. And I thought, well, yes, but you still want to do things like um, enforce contracts and protect property and so forth. 
So I started thinking about, um, and to some extent, some other people started thinking about how to apply computer science to um, to protect your business in cyberspace. This bleeds into, I did just enough reading to hopefully have questions to ask. I didn't want to read so much that I left out basics, fundamentals for people. Cryptography. If, if most people think that, uh, or they hear that word, maybe the exposure they've had is watching a movie that involves an Enigma machine or something like that. Mm -hmm. But what, what is cryptography? The original cryptography is, is if you saw that movie, is keeping secrets. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, in that movie, uh, the Nazis failing to keep secrets from the British and Alan Turing because their cryptography wasn't strong enough. But these days, you have really strong cryptography. So breaking it in that brute force manner, like um, they broke the Nazi codes, is, is pretty unlikely these days. Mm -hmm. um, there are some other things you can do, like take people's private keys and, and so forth. But uh, the, br the brute force attack doesn't work anymore. I mean, there are some old ciphers where we're, we're starting to work, but um, as long as you have the latest stuff like Bitcoin does, then, mm -hmm. then you're fine. Yeah, I would say it's like basically keeping secrets through mathematics. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are many, many breakthroughs that enable cryptocurrencies. But uh, one of the key things to understand in cryptography is this concept of one-way uh, encoding, one-way hash functions. Mm -hmm. Basically, I can take some data, run it through a mathematical transformation, and what comes out of the other side is really hard to undo. It's really hard to work backwards. So it's kind of a one-way thing. So is, is when people send encrypted email through, say, PGP or something like yeah. that, is that an example of that? Yeah, is basically that what I've done. So in the old days, if I was encrypting something, we would both have the same key, right? And so, I, or I would have a key that I, I would take your key, I would encrypt with your key, send it to you. You have the key, you can decrypt with the key. But the problem was, how do I figure out what your key is? How do I figure out how to encrypt it? And because your key can both encrypt and decrypt. So if I had a hold of your key, then I could open the message. Right. So it was very unsafe to transmit that key. And so one of the innovations that came along was this idea of splitting the key into a public key and a private key. So uh, private key is what you hold on to that can decrypt and encrypt stuff. Your public key, on the other hand, other people can encrypt to it for you, but they can't use it to decrypt I got it. It's your It's a stuff. write only. It's a write only. Yeah, it's a one way kind of thing. So, I mean, this is probably beyond the scope of this discussion, but it's worth digging a little bit into what are called one way hash functions and public keys and private keys because they underlie a lot of cryptography. And they seem like complicated concepts, but they're not that complicated. Uh, and I, I would argue this is one of those mental models that you kind of have to figure out to start operating the modern technological world. Uh, but cryptocurrencies essentially use these one-way hash functions to make statements um, like I gave Tim $10, right? So if I said, I gave you $10, normally we need a central authority to verify that. Like the bank has to verify that and the central bank has to verify it. Well, this leads bank. to the question of, and I'm not going to yeah. interrupt beyond this, but why why create cryptocurrency? Why is it important? What are the benefits? Yeah. So, I mean, one huge benefit is we don't need any more a trusted uh, third party to uh, verify that transaction. We can do it in the cloud through a distributed network, which is kind of what the cryptocurrency does. Um, but I'll, I'll let Nick talk more about this. But he had a great quote um, that I think is very relevant where he said, uh, this is the dawn of trustworthy computing, right? Because before this, computers are kind of untrusted. Like if I send you money from my computer to your computer, we're really relying on Visa and the banks and a bunch of intermediaries to actually say, yes, the money got to you and the, the money is no longer mine. Uh, but computers don't like to operate like that. Computers, you know, computer code, especially uh, 
stuff that's running in the cloud on its own uh, shouldn't have to rely on an offline wet space, meet space institution to enforce that kind of thing. Um, so cryptocurrencies take the concept of money and they take it native into computers where everything is settled with computers and doesn't require external institutions or trusted third parties to validate things. Just to try to paraphrase that for my own understanding. So in other words, you don't have to say, trust a stranger to do something. You don't have to trust a central authority to be the arbiter of whatever decisions end up being made or implemented. It's built into the technology itself. Yeah. Why, why is cryptocurrency important to you? So it's important for, I think, the, the partially political reason to gain more independence um, of your life from these institutions. And it just creates new capabilities. Like somebody now in Guatemala can base somebody in Canada without using an intermediary in New York City or something. That's just greatly advantageous for, for global commerce, I think. Yeah, so if I can just dig into that a little bit more. Definitely dig in. I also, at some point, because this word has plagued me for a few years now, blockchain. I do not know what it means, and I don't know why it's called blockchain. I actually thought Nick's uh, earlier analogy of a fly getting trapped in amber is kind of brilliant. Um, like, if you see a fly in amber and it's got, you know, a millimeter of amber around it, well, that could have been done yesterday or, you know, uh, like a year ago. But if you see the fly is trapped in a huge block of amber, you know it's been there for a long, long time. It's been accumulating. So a blockchain is a series of blocks. Each block is a series of computations done by computers all over the world using serious cryptography in a way that's very hard to undo. So each block is like another thin layer of amber. I see. And the chain of blocks represents the depth of that amber, how long that fly has been trapped in, and therefore how uh, you can trust that honest signal. Anything deep down in the blockchain is mathematically, cryptographically, and just economically impossible to undo. Got it. Okay. Actually, I shouldn't use words like impossible in cryptography. It's, all, it's always improbable. <laughs> That's highly improbable. improbable. Yeah. <laughs> what are some other core concepts that people should understand just as the cryptocurrency 101 or currency 101? I mean, depending on, on where we want to go with yeah, things. Yeah, I, I even want to start with like, what is money? Right? Sure. Because we're throwing around the word currency and money and people talk about gold and store of value. And, you know, Nick actually created Bitgold, which was, uh, some would argue, a, a critical foundational predecessor to Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin had an additional breakthrough or two that it employed that Bitgold did not. But Bitgold was the giant on whose shoulders Bitcoin stands. Uh, and Nick also created both the, the phrase and the concept and the theory behind smart contracts, which we're now starting to hear about in the context of other cryptocurrencies like Ethereum. Uh, but I, I think we should just, uh, this is a complicated enough topic that it's worth just starting with like, what is money? If you ask 10 people on the street what money is, you'd probably get 10 different answers. Sure. Um, so I think it's important just to be rigorous about that. Yeah, and if you ask a lawyer, you'll get a, an answer that's radically different than if you ask an economist as well. If you ask a lawyer, they'll say something like an official government currency. So of course, Bitcoin and gold, you can't write checks for those because uh, those are not legal official government currencies. So that's the, that's the kind of narrow modern legal definition. Economists use the definition of medium of exchange, which is a much broader definition, but that also assumes that, you know, the only important transactions are people exchanging things, which in our, in our modern economy is a good assumption. But if you actually go back to the origins of money, which I've liked to study, um, you find things like inheritance and compensation for injuries as 
equivalent to a, a modern lawsuit, but not necessarily with governments and courts, more like wars to enforce the force the verdict. And uh, Bridewell, there's certain fitness critical, critical to Darwinian fitness that other animals can't do, that humans can. And that form of, I, I like to call it collectibles because now I've extended the definition of money far broader than probably any economist would want to. But uh, so I call it collectibles, but it's very similar. So the Yurok Indians, for example, use shells to, and they would have tattoo marks on their arm. They were serious about their shells. They would have tattoo marks on their arm to measure the length of shells. And that told you the denomination, the value of, of how valuable that shell was, which corresponds to how scarce it was in nature. And they would use these for inheritance, for injury compensation, for bride wealth and so forth. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, as, so I think the the common theory is that humans have only been using money for a few thousand years, but I think some of the work you've done on origins of money shows that actually it's hundreds thousand years. Yeah. You can go back in the archeological record and it's a puzzle for a hundred thousand years in our Darwinian world that people lived in. Um, why people do something so frivolous as, you know, adorn themselves with shell necklaces. Yet those are among the most common artifacts right up there with axes, practical axes that you can use to cut things in the archaeological record. Yeah. So, I mean, on, on the money thing, like I've also tried to wrap my head around this. And as uh, Nick said, uh, economists would say it's a medium of exchange. Uh, as the historical record shows, it's a store of value. So even if you're not exchanging it, you just want to build store value. You may not want to store bread or rocks or houses. So you store Or they may shells. be impractical to yeah, transport. Exactly. And then it's also a unit of account. So in other words, like you have to denominate prices in something. I'm, I'm not going to tell you how many loaves of bread a car costs. Uh, <laughs> so I need to be able to just pick a unit of account to do Don't it. judge. I only yeah. do that occasionally. So it, it is all of those things. And I think one of the places where people fall down on cryptocurrencies is they say, well, no one's using Bitcoin to buy anything right now. So it may not be fulfilling the medium of exchange function, uh, but it is. it may be fulfilling a different function like store of value. It might be the Swiss bank account in everyone's pocket or in their mind, or it might be the defense against a Cyprus-style bank haircut. Or it could be the the future that is here but not evenly distributed, right? Per Absolutely. Get some. You can go to Palo Alto to Copa Cafe and buy coffee mm -hmm. with Bitcoin right now. Yeah, and, and within, within my social circle, uh, there is a large group of people who will take Bitcoin as legal tender. Like you can go to them and settle debts in Bitcoin and they will happily take it. <laughs> <laughs> or if you want to buy, <laughs> say, uh, scientific abstracts or articles from a Russian website, they may only take <laughs> Bitcoin as well. Yeah, and, and, and it does it does seem a little bubbly, which is you know you kind of say, well, it's only money because everyone believes this money. But uh, one definition I really liked of uh, money is money is the bubble that never pops. So if we had if if the tulip bubble had never popped, we'd probably be dealing in tulips today. Now it popped for fairly good reasons, which is tulips make for lousy money. They're hard to store, they're hard to transport, they're hard to subdivide. Um, but cryptocurrencies uh, actually are the exact opposite end of that scale. They are easier to store, easier to transport, easier to subdivide, um, cheaper in many ways, uh, and more defensible uh, than almost any other form of money or gold or commodity. Now, what makes, since we're talking about money or currency, what makes money valuable? I think this might be interesting to just dig into for a second, because you have, say, at, at certain points in time, paper pegged to gold, right? And then so reading today, because it's another word that I've seen a lot, but aside from the car company, I was not sure what fiat really meant. So if we're talking about, don't even know if there's even, even around anymore, what distinguishes, say, cryptocurrency or makes cryptocurrency valuable? Is it the rarity 
what are the factors that that determine that well i mean the scarcity is an essential essential part of it um you if it starts inflating on you then your share of it goes down so the scarcity is quite essential to it um other things are you want it to be easy and secure to store and transport and and bitcoin has the advantage that you can send to people all over the world and um store it on a hardware wallet which is a fairly secure way to store it and the most important part of it what is a hardware wallet so a hardware wallet so your normal computers are pretty insecure and that that's one of the stories of blockchains is that um this distributed system is a lot more secure than an individual computer um so your own computer could have malware viruses and so forth so hardware wallet's a separate piece like on usb stick you plug in it has its own chip on it and bitcoin your private key gets stored on that chip rather than uh, on the computer so got it yeah. Got it. yeah, there's a zillion ways to store Bitcoin. You could do it on your computer, but then your computer is connected to the, to the internet, it's a security hole. You could put it in an online exchange, but then you're just trusting an unregulated bank. Um, you can put it in a hardware wallet, which says Nick said a dedicated device. Um, you can put it on a piece of paper and stick it in your bank account. Is and that then, cold storage? Or that's cold that storage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cold storage. Where you this is where I know the words, but not yeah. what they mean. This, this is, is this is one of the <laughs> yeah. This is one of the crazy things about this concept because money in money and speech turn out to be the same thing. Money, information, math—they're the same thing. So in a Bitcoin world, I can literally write down my Bitcoin address and keys on a piece of paper and put it in a safety deposit box, and it's basically in cold storage. I could even put it in my head. I can memorize the key phrases and I could cross borders with a billion dollars in my brain. Um, so in that, it's a very powerful, but mind bending, literally concept in that sense. Is this a point where it makes sense to talk about smart contracts or is that a non sequitur? No, I, or, I think- Or is there, is there a good bridge? Yeah, no, I think, I think we should get into it. First, I, I, th- I want to make sure that we understand what blockchains and Bitcoin are, right? It might be worth going into like, yeah. what are the key innovations that enabled Bitcoin? And I'll leave you to dictate when yeah. this makes sense or either of you guys, but the article that you sent me about the, I guess, fat protocol layer. Right. And I'll get into that later. Yeah. Okay. We'll get yeah. there. That's a little teaser for folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll let you lead it then. Yeah. So I, I think it's worth getting into like, what is the Bitcoin computer, right? Because there is basically, you can, you can abstract and think of Bitcoin as running on a blockchain computer. Uh, and maybe Nick can take a stab at defining what it is. By the way, this is one of those things where I think if you ask 10 different people in cryptocurrencies what Bitcoin is and what a blockchain is and what a blockchain computer is, you'll get 10 different answers. You know, some people are more qualified than others. Well, it's it's also just, it's new. It's hard to figure out. These are very abstract concepts, ideas being turned into code. And um, they are all, Bitcoin is almost to computers what, I, what like quantum mechanics is to physics it throws a lot of people in the field off. Well, it's also like quantum physics because you have a lot of uh, well-intentioned like hippies and new agey people who will misappropriate yes. it and use it completely incorrectly. Absolutely. So not to say there are a lot of new agey hippie people getting into cryptocurrency. There might be, but uh, I think you also have that challenge. Yeah, they, it's just layers of understanding. Like I don't know how to write code for a Merkle tree. I don't know how to take apart a Bitcoin block and analyze it. Um, so in some level, I'm still, you know, a new hippie hippie trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's worth getting into like, what is the blockchain computer and how does it enable Bitcoin? I guess, first of all, before I drop into that, another important concept to the architecture that hasn't been mentioned yet is replication. So there's thousands of copies of these things running on what are called full nodes all over the world. And those are servers? Right, right. So they're they're servers. They can be laptops um, or larger machines. 
but uh, there are thousands of them running all over the world. So anybody who has a copy of this, can their machine can do a full validation for itself. And it's kind of the most secure way to run run a cryptocurrency. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but basically what's going on is if I give Tim $10 and then Tim gives Nick those $10, the way we keep track of it is through a piece of paper or in the old days with the Yurok Indians, it would be a shell of a certain measurement. But now with Bitcoin, there's a ledger. We basically just keep track in a ledger entry that Naval moved this $10 to Tim, Tim moved the $10 to Nick. Now, the problem is who maintains the sanctity of that ledger? Can you just forge that ledger? So historically, the central bank wouldn't maintain the sanctity of the ledger or the fact that you have a certain dollar bill with a serial number and it maintains the sanctity of the ledger. But now Bitcoin has the craziest answer you can imagine, but it turns out to work, which is everybody has a copy of the ledger. So everyone in the Bitcoin network who's running a node keeps a copy of the ledgers from the dawn of Bitcoin till now. And that is a testament to the computing power and memory that we have available in, in modern computers that people can do this at home. You can run a full Bitcoin node where you keep a copy of every single Bitcoin transaction from the dawn of time till now. And all these computers running together essentially validate with each other, like, are our ledgers the same? Are we using the same ledger? And whose ledger is correct in case there's a disagreement? Uh, and that's where kind of all the blockchain comes in, doing all this cryptography. And then another thing that's replicated, besides the data and the uh, um, integrity cryptography we talked about, um, is code, computer programs. And kind of the second definition of smart contracts, we'll get into the first definition later, but the, the second definition is simply describing this code that's replicated that's running on all these nodes. And uh, that code can do things like enforce on Bitcoin. It can do some fairly simple things that add some sophistication or like require multiple signatures to do a spend, for example. So like so you can think of signature authority in an office where multiple people have to sign off on something. You can set up your Bitcoin to do that using one of these smart contracts, one of these pieces of code replicated. I, I might be taking us back or taking us ahead or neither. Uh, <laughs> so we're wandering through the blockchain. It's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's a smart contract. In essence, are you taking what would rely on human beings and embedding it into the technology so that there's you don't have to rely on a standard set of ethics, a, a reliable set of behavior? Is that a smart contract? Yeah, so to some extent, there there's some areas of, of contracts, some kinds of contractual clauses, usually but not always associated with the financial aspects of the contract um, that you can, they're really logically structured and you can code that into the computer, put it on the blockchain, and then it runs at a really high integrity. And that means that somebody in Albania can do a smart contract with somebody in Zimbabwe and to the extent that they can formalize their deal mathematically with through this logic um, code, they don't have to rely on the Albanian authorities or the Zimbabwe authorities. They can just do business directly. And uh, you had a great term for this. This is getting into the, the dry versus wet code, mm -hmm. right? So dry being computer-based, wet right. being potentially the legalese in the head of a lawyer in Albania and right. the legalese in the head of a lawyer in Zimbabwe, which is going to be a whole whole just slew of mess potentially right so i like to think all that legal ease you see in a contract as as a as a program that runs on the brains of a lawyer it doesn't usually <laughs> run on nor brains of normal people but. <laughs> this is gonna yeah, i'm trying not to take us too too far afield what we're talking about but how did you become so interested in contracts so it's part of 
I guess, libertarian ideology, but it's also part, I went to law school and it's also part of law school 101 that um, property and contract law are the kind of the two fundamental building blocks of our commercial society. Yeah. So I was interested in, in how do you enforce those in cyberspace? I don't meet many people. I meet people who have, say, JD MBA mm. or JD PhD. I don't meet many people who have JD and computer science degree. And, li and libertarian on top of that. <laughs> and libertarian on top of that. Although I have heard there are some libertarians running around the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, but JD. Apparently, I'm a libertarian, I've been told. Relatively to the average person in Silicon Valley. Well, I live in San Francisco, no <laughs> guns. And they're like, you're a libertarian. I'm like, is that it? Really? Is yeah. that easy? I got my, my, my card. Okay. How did you end up doing both of those degrees? It's, I, I haven't run into that before. Well, the law degree is in large part based on smart contracts and wanting to do a reality check of the stuff I'd thought of uh, as a computer scientist. I see. So the computer science came first. Yeah. And then the JD was... Right. Went to study the wet code. Then... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now that I know how a computer works, let me go look at an abacus and see what that's like. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So so I, I think some of this is it's smart contracts, which, uh, by the way, as I said earlier, Nick created not just the concept, but the theory behind it. Uh, smart contracts are essentially taking that wet code, converting it to dry code, and then putting it inside blockchain so it's immutable after a while that it's it becomes a fly trapped in amber. If we made an agreement, and the simplest smart contract, by the way, is just I gave you money and you got the money. That's a very, very simple contract that got fulfilled. So, But you can put much more complex... So a contract is promise and fulfillment of promise. Or is there an easier way to think about it? Because when I think contract, I think of all these clauses, all right, termination, arbitration, term, et cetera. I think of all these because I look at way too sure. many contracts. Now, so um, you can think of the primordial granddaddy of all smart contracts as the vending machine. So a vending machine um, in, in contract law terms, it verifies a performance. You put in your quarter and it verifies you put in the quarter through its uh, mechanical. I'm talking about old fashioned yeah, vending sure. machines. It has logic in that says, okay... You put in a quarter, the soda costs a dime, so I'm going to give you a, a dime and a nickel back and the soda you selected. So you can think of writing this in a contract tediously um, that, uh, you know, if if the party of the first puts in a quarter, you know, the party of the second will give them back. But of course you want to do this in a machine, right? Yeah. So don't give the lawyers any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> it's verifying a performance on the one hand, somebody it's observing that somebody did their payment or their other performance of a contractual deal. And then on the other hand, it's automating a performance. It's dispensing, dispensing the goods. So the codes are kind of the two basic things smart contracts can do. They, they verify somebody's performance um, and they automate performance. Now, the third thing is if you have, and there's a bunch of stuff that's inherently wet. Most of the stuff that you can code into smart contracts as those two kinds of things are like payments and various financial conditions. You can do a lot of financial stuff like um, options and collateralized loans and so forth, uh, futures. But uh, for things that are inherently wet, though nobody's figured out how to have the computer verify or automate the performance yet, um, you can you know, invoke an arbitrator, uh, a signature structure like multi-sig to have humans approve certain steps. In what, what would be an example of where you or someone else might want multi-sigs in that universe? If you're doing something with a, an escrow, for example, that you have the person or persons 
um, responsible it. for the collateral, verifying that the contract was performed, then they can free up the collateral. Got it. So if you wanted to buy a house but had to do inspections mm-hmm. and wanted to use Bitcoin, right? Yeah, that'd be a good situation. Yeah, I mean there are things you can do now with smart contracts, which you call on-chain, where you can have all the money and the collateral and the escrow and the data as close to computerized as possible. So the stuff that people are starting to do with smart contracts now is pretty mind-blowing. Can we talk about the article you sent me? I, I know it seems like it might not be the right. It, yeah, yeah, it was very helpful to me. Sure. So do you want to dig in? Yeah. So there's this there's this concept of uh, what Bitcoin and Ethereum and these other cryptocurrencies are doing um, is they're they're the new protocols. And what is a protocol? A protocol is kind of like a God. Now I'm going to get trapped in definitions, but a, a protocol is sort of how computers. It, it's a standard for how computers exchange information. Um, so, for example, you and I speaking the English language is a form of protocol. But then also like HTTP. Yeah, I'm supposed to pause every five seconds, and then you're supposed to get a chance to speak. That's part of the protocol. We say hello to each other as a greeting. That's part of the protocol. So we have verbal packets like TCP. Yeah, IP, exactly. Right? Also another protocol. Yeah, and then the internet. These protocols are TCP/IP, HTTP, SMTP. Every time your email gets sent from one server to another, it's using the SMTP, Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. And these protocols power the internet. Um, And the assumption that was made in the early days of the internet was that, well, bandwidth is cheap, servers are cheap, hardware is cheap, so it's free. If I want to send you a packet, it's free. If you want to receive the packet, it's free. It doesn't cost anything. But those assumptions are breaking down. Um, we have denial of service attacks, which is basically your computer demands resources from my computer that I, I'm saying no, but you're asking so many times for free that it just overwhelms me. Spam is another example. I can send you a zillion emails at hardly any cost, but it costs you a lot of attention. So these free protocols are are becoming poor assumptions. The worst place for a poor assumption on a protocol is a protocol for exchanging money. If I say, Tim, I want to give you $10, that has to be scarce in some way. It can't just be... It can't be a free transaction, right? Because it's money that's exchanging hands. So we need a concept of protocols that underlie scarce resources, that, that allocate scarce resources. And what's going on is cryptocurrencies and blockchains are creating these, uh, what are now being called FAT protocols. Uh, and we'll put an article in the, in the show notes about this, but FAT protocols are protocols uh, that actually exchange scarce value and they keep data in the protocol. They maintain data. That's the key piece, right? Or in a way. Yeah, there's two key pieces. One is scarcity, which is regulated by a token. So in the Bitcoin protocol, the scarce piece is the Bitcoin itself. And the protocol is about the exchange of money and the token is Bitcoin. And then there's data that you can put in the blockchain. Like I could, for example, take a uh, an article that I wrote, I could hash it, the one-way crypto hash, put it in the blockchain, prove that it came from me, and then it gets trapped in the amber again, like the fly, and no one can undo it later, and it's secured by the value of the blockchain. So the, these, these new protocols, these FAT protocols are very different. They're going to exchange, they're going to enable a new kind of internet that we did not have before. Um, that's a thesis of kind of the FAT protocol argument. Just for, for people listening who, like me, were trying to find their way, their way through the darkness with a lot of this stuff. When I read that piece, which is on the Union Square Ventures website. Yeah. Hi, Fred and guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of the author. It was very good. Joel uh, Montenegro. There we go. Yeah. And the, the, the before and after example that was given, or one of them, was you have these thin protocols, HTTP, et cetera. And then you have these services built on top of them that become silos of information, whether that's Facebook, 
Google, whatever it might be. And then they develop their own means of authentication and so on. So you have these captive stores of information. You have uh, security risks on top of that. So now perhaps you're doing your banking through a web server. And conversely, when you then have the, and I hate to use this word, but sort of the democratized data that is built into the protocol itself, say in the case of Bitcoin, where now you have all of these nodes that have, for the purposes of illustration, every transaction start to finish. Uh, it's more secure, you're less captive, and it conforms to the libertarian slash Ayn Rand ideals that we were talking about earlier. And the illustration that was given that I thought was fascinating and may or may not hold true for for decades, but was that you have protocols that they're necessary but not valuable, right? They're they're available, they're like utility to the public. And then you have these these billion dollar, multi-billion dollar companies built on top of it, Facebook, Google, et cetera. Then you have, conversely, Bitcoin, which has a market cap of X. I don't know what it is. Five billion today. Okay. Yeah. And then the companies built on top of it are in Vanishingly the, small, but in the tens or hundreds of millions at most, right? So it's a complete flip in terms of... Yeah, the value is getting captured by the FAT protocol. Yeah, I do recommend this article. It's actually John, uh, sorry, uh, Joel Monegro. I got his last name wrong, but uh, he wrote a brilliant piece on this. But the thesis is that uh, because these protocols are storing your identity and data on the, on the protocol, in the protocol itself, the applications don't capture you as much. You're not stuck in the applications and the value is captured by the tokens in the protocol. Does that mean this is, this is just putting on the investor hat for a second that people are going to be incentivized to just create more and more different types of cryptocurrency and then reserve to try to capture that. That's exactly what's happening. So I I wrote a post on this called the Bitcoin model for crowdfunding. And and this is a couple of years back. And I thought these things called app coins would show up where for every application, rather than going and raising VC money, you just attach a token to it and you crowdfund it. And that's kind of what's happening now with what they call ICOs, initial coin offerings. And there's been hundreds and hundreds of these. And you know, it's a little bubbly. In fact, it's very bubbly. A lot of them are getting bit up out of control. Some of it comes from the fact that a few of these protocols do need their own token. They can't yeah. use Bitcoin. But most of the times, it's really just the developers have an incentive to create a token, bolt it on and try and capture the value. But it's but it's it's an interesting model for funding open source software and protocols that didn't really exist before. Our bubble is a bad thing, and this is this is something I've also been reading about that I'm really I don't know if, if you have any any thoughts on this, but in many people's minds, bubbles are a bad thing. But I read a counter argument for the first time today, which was, you know, after a bubble bursts, then you have out of the money investors who are incentivized <laughs> in re- in regaining the value of what has declined by creating services and uh, applications that are now these sort of thin applications, which then preserves the sort of long-term viability of X, whatever that might be, which I hadn't really considered before. Well, there is a sense in which many bubbles are unavoidable because the future is a genuinely uncertain place. Yeah, especially this is, these are reflexive industries where uh, you know the notion of re- reflexivity is like my prediction alone changes the right. potential outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, the extreme example is like a, a prediction market predicting the death of somebody. If there's enough money on that, it turns into an assassination market. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, bubbles are inherently, I think, just a part of any system that involves network effects. If I think 
and, and money is the ultimate network effect. I, I accept US dollars as money because you accept US dollars as money and so on. If we all believe that, if we all believe tomorrow that tulips were valuable again, we'd be trading in tulips. Right. So if I believe that you're going to accept this as money, then I want to put more money in and you want to put more money in. The network effect sort of creates a bubble. And as Nick said, the future's in an uncertain place. So sometimes we'll be wrong or we'll have to step back. There'll be a little bit of a releasing of energy. Um, I read something a couple of years back that that showed that as the stock market is becoming more efficient, it's actually becoming more volatile. It's not becoming less volatile, it's becoming more volatile because it's reacting faster and faster to information changes. That's like the story. Well, you can look at long-term capital management where there are all sorts of high-frequency trading. So you have not only humans... Right, who are in, increasingly interconnected, but you also have computers. <laughs> right now, there's a there's a big train derailment in China that causes a political change that causes uh, the futures market in China to shift, that causes the U.S. stock market to go down. Right, computers are getting better and better at absorbing that information, extrapolating out the consequences, and uh, and so the markets are becoming more and more volatile. So over time, we should see bubbles form faster pop more quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they'll fall into a power law distribution. Like there, there'll be ones that'll be really large. There'll be ones that'll be really small. And, but this idea that the future is going to be very smooth and linear and predictable is a human illusion. Yeah. Yeah. I, would say. <laughs> uh, I think that's a fair assumption. Nick, what are the biggest misconceptions uh, or common misunderstandings related to cryptocurrency or Bitcoin? Or, or like, what do smart people get wrong? Uh, if, if there's anything where you're like, God, this like X drives me nuts. If I hear one more person who should know better. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could get into the whole block size issue because there's this parameter um, we shouldn't, but I probably will talk about it a little bit. Um, there, there's this, there's this, it's a technical security parameter. It's called the block size. How the general public glommed onto this, I do not know. But there's there's a, an obsessive group of people who think of this as some kind of artificial barrier to more transactions per second on Bitcoin. Really it's, its job is it's, it's a fence preventing um, people from overwhelming, flooding the network with, with lots of transactions that the full nodes I talked about can't handle. That, that transaction history keeps building and building. Yeah, at a very simple level, if, if every computer is storing a copy mm-hmm. of every transaction, then you can't have an infinite number of transactions because right, the computer right. will explode. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is if you if you keep increasing the number of transactions too too quickly, then you only allow a smaller and smaller shrinking set of computers to run the code, um, right. which reduces who who's actually in charge of the security. Before you might've had a million computers, then you're down to a hundred thousand big computers. Then there's only a few thousand large players. Then eventually down to five people mm-hmm. who can store the entire history. And then you're basically back to central banks. Right. So the debate is, should we keep allowing more and more transactions? Because what if people, everyone wants to buy a Starbucks using their Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. Um, or should be only limited to very high value transactions and instead preserve the diversity of people who can, who can run the code? Yeah, I mean, this shouldn't even be a public debate. It's like the public debating and voting on the graphite reactor setting or graphite <laughs> thing settings that prevent a nuclear reactor from uh, overheating and melting down. Right, let them debate the bike shed. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there, there are certain things you should let the engineers decide, and, and this is one of them. And uh, for some reason, there's just a whole group of people who want to pull out those 
graphite moderator rods and have it going full steam. <laughs> yeah, one of the problems with the Bitcoin is that because a lot of people hold a little bit of Bitcoin, everyone has a financial incentive and they're all talking their own book and they get really emotional about it. Nick had this great tweet that I liked said, best way to destroy your investment in Bitcoin is to gather an internet mob to go and redesign Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> and that's a little bit of what's happening right now. Well, you were saying, you know, before we started recording that a lot of you've you've never seen so many scientists be uncivil towards one another. Yeah, I think I think the, the worst Twitter is Trump Twitter, where everyone's getting outraged over politics all the time. But the second worst Twitter right now is blockchain Twitter, oh, yeah. <laughs> where you'll have uh, PhDs from Cornell and University of Maryland, and all kinds of credential places, literally calling each other horrific names online, uh, casting aspersions on other people's moral, ca- moral character, calling them trolls. Uh, dragging them through the mud and they they each have their little local tribal mob behind them over things like the block size debate, which as Nick says, you know, it's like changing the parameter settings in a nuclear reactor. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it makes me think of, uh, there are a bunch of sort of expressions that jump to mind. You're saying, you're talking their own book. So the uninformed has to be very careful about asking a barber if they need a haircut, right? You need to know what the incentives are. And I'm sure people have heard the expression. It's not very flattering. But a man is as loyal as his options. It might be you know, a scientist or someone who is otherwise civil is as civil as their incentives, right? Yes. Once you have enough to gain or lose. Yeah, incentives are everything. It's like uh, Charlie Munger says, if you can be working on incentives, don't work on anything else. Uh, and and it's, you know, going back to Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin design for a second, Bitcoin is brilliantly designed because of the underlying game theory and incentives. Yeah, could we talk just for a second about what is Bitcoin? So we talked about cryptocurrency. What makes Bit- what made Bitcoin and what makes Bitcoin unique? If if that's if we could maybe talk we, about that. You can think about it in a couple layers. The the most important and fundamental layer is a computer science layer layer where we prove that it would take fifty one percent of the computational power, the hash rate, to um, attack this thing and do things like double spend. Basically changing that ledger, right? So yeah. it's like you can't change the ledger. The beauty is the fly and amber analogy is a great one yeah. because once we, you and I have done a transaction, the network has agreed on the transaction, going back and undoing it is nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. But while that amber is being laid down, mm-hmm. there can still be some mischief. Right. So one of the big misconceptions of Bitcoin is that, well, if 51% of the computers in the network, the, which are run by people called miners, they're called miners, this is the old analogy, they're digging for gold, so they're digging for Bitcoin. But really what they're doing is they're laying down that amber. If 51% of these people collude, then does that mean they can go back and change the ledger? No, they can't change the existing ledger, but they can cause mischief with the current transactions right. or the current layer that's being laid down. It's one of the big misconceptions. Um, so sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so that's one of the the computer science limitations of it. And, and the other one is doing software upgrades. Software upgrades kind of change the rules even more so. Yeah. And so those two things end up getting, um, especially as the software upgrades, end up getting very politicized. Yeah, Bitcoin fundamentally, what what's going on? So uh, Nick first created BitGold, right? Do you want to talk about what the innovation in BitGold was, or how the BitGold system worked, and then we can layer on Bitcoin? On sure. Top. I mean, BitGold was inspired by kind of this origins of money research and how do I, and also there was a, an era called private banking, mm-hmm. where you could take your your bank note and go up to a bank window and get gold, and the bank. The paper money we have today looks very much like these banknotes did. Um, a thing I call authority resemblance. They're sort of faking and pretending to yeah. that this is still really valuable stuff. Um, and the illusion works apparently for the most part. But uh, 
But they used to work very differently. You used to be able to go up to window and, and get actual gold for your paper. Yeah, now it's just um, tulips. It's just yeah. green, green flattened tulips. <laughs> yeah, it was debt. Now it's just the paper itself. You got to just trust the paper itself in the Federal Reserve. But um, in any case, I was inspired by what people... Which is a fiat currency. I never actually right. right. Fiat currency is just a paper that's backed by nothing. So before it was shells, then we went to gold, then we went to gold-backed paper, and now we're down to just paper. Creating that banknote itself is easy enough to do. That's basically what PayPal and a company I was working for called DigiCash with David Chaum and stuff are doing. That trust-based um, paper note that was issued by some central authority. But I became dissatisfied with that because at the end of the day, you want to go to that window and get something else that's uh, more what I call trust-minimized. So gold is valuable all over the world. If you go back to these uh, more primitive tribes, the gold and the shells and the so forth, you know, you could pay them to the next tribe, next tribe over. All your neighbors would accept them as well. They wouldn't accept your your IOU because, <laughs> you know, you're not going to trust people you could go war, war with tomorrow. But they would accept um, the shells or the copper beads or the gold beads. The first gold artifact, by the way, is a bead and the first copper artifact. Those are apparently the most important earliest uses of, of, of metal, not knives or weapons or tools or so forth. Hmm. In any case, so... Um, so I was looking for this trust minimizing, like how to do this in cyberspace. Um, since I had read stuff, I know it's not just some magical property of gold that makes it valuable and other things aren't or something, um, or some intrinsic, you know, it started off, you can use it in elect, you know, electrical circuits or so forth. No, there's something about um, what I call the unforgeable costliness um, of it, the scarcity of it, the naturally trust minimized scarcity of it. You don't have to trust somebody to keep it scarce. I tried to recreate this in cyberspace using proof of work, um, Adam Back's hash cache. And so basically the BitGold design did that, and then it used a replication technique, um, which had originally Could been you developed. you explain that? I apologize mm -hmm. to backtrack, but the yeah. proof of work, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Okay, so proof of work is a mathematical puzzle, a computation that the computer does that says, okay, you have to solve this, and we know from computer science it'll take so long to solve. Um, but we also know from computer science that it's, it's uh, a kind of a problem that you can improve the hardware, which is why everybody designs specialized hardware for it, Got it. now, because um, unlike normal cryptography, it's, well, that, that's not even unlike normal cryptography in that way, but um, it's something that you can do a lot faster if, if you have hardware. Proof, proof of work is basically you have to, uh, you, you have people here who are basically laying down the layer of amber on the fly, right? And so they have to basically commit resources to do it. It has to be costly to do that. You need scarcity in the system, right? So that's, that scarcity is created by the costliness of the computing power that you throw at it. So basically, the more computer power you want to throw at the Bitcoin network, the more seriously the Bitcoin network takes your vote. Mm -hmm. And we have to know your computing power is dedicated to the Bitcoin network. It's not you know, off surfing the internet or doing something else. So you have to commit it to doing work just for the Bitcoin network. And the proof is through mathematical functions. Got it. So you basically have puzzles to solve. The Bitcoin network, the algorithms, give the computers puzzles to solve. If the computers solve the puzzles, they can prove that, yes, I put economic value, time, heat, power, computation into solving this problem. So now I get a vote on what the ledger looks like and I get a chance to be paid in coin. Got so this it. is what the miners do. The miners do the work to secure the network using computers. They provide that proof to the network. The network pays them in new coins that it's, my, that it's minting. Got it. Anyway, so um, now Satoshi had an innovation where he uses this proof of work as part of the security. And for people who don't know, who is Satoshi? Who that name? 
Well, it's some unknown character out there that has disappeared. Yeah, our group. Yeah, yeah whoever, whoever created Bitcoin, you know, obviously built on Nick's work, built on uh, Hal Finney's work, uh, Way. There were a couple of great computer scientists who, who did this work. Um, but whoever actually built the working implementation, because I think, Nick, you had you had the theory of Bitcoin, but you're mm. not a serious enough programmer to create Bitcoin. Well, I'm a serious programmer, but I was too... Uh, <laughs> didn't get around to programming Bitcoin. So yeah, it's, it was a design. And uh, so whoever created Bitcoin, probably a group, because it looks like a very sophisticated effort, mm-hmm. uh, did it pseudonymously or anonymously. And the, 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 the name that they used was Satoshi Nakamoto. Bitgold was designed on the theory to use this proof of work as a, uh, what I call unforgeable costliness or to constrain the supply curves. You know it's scarce. And Satoshi's big innovation was to, well, let me backtrack and describe a little more Bitgold. So um, there's a, a protocol designed for, to keep airplanes from crashing because you don't want your computer to go crash on an airplane and cause the airplane to crash, right? right. You want to be, your computer to be able to crash an airplane without the airliner itself going down. So um, what you need is to distribute this around. So you have several chips all around the airplane and then they talk to each other. And then if they get contradictory information, they do what you might call voting. They'll take the majority um, and consider that to be the correct one. And that turns out to be they mathematically prove that this was the optimal model, given those assumptions that you know how many chips there are and so forth. Um, and this is called Byzantine consensus. So I took that and used it for this replication business to replicate the data around the ledger round uh, with a Merkle tree for the transaction history and so forth. Um, what Satoshi did was a really big innovation besides, of course, actually making software people could use, which <laughs> I never did. He used the proof of work and security. So on the internet, you can't count your chips securely. You don't know I have a chip in the tail and a chip in the wing and so forth. There's a sock puppet problem. People, one person can be, pretend to be a hundred and where one computer can pretend to be a hundred. Satoshi based it on proof of work base of security that voting like if the preponderance of the hash rate tells me that the transaction is history has been updated in such and such a way then that's that's it and again that's good up to 51 percent that's where the 51 percent attack comes from basically one computation one vote is the way to think about it got it um and, and actually you know one of the one of the problems that people have with the Bitcoin network is designed. So basically Bitcoin, you have all these computers around the world that are joining together to create this shared blockchain computer. They get votes in proportion to how much CPU power they're allocating. They vote on what the valid transactions are that then go into this ledger and get sealed in the amber of the blockchain. Um, and the whole system kind of works. But a naive person looking from the outside, as you said, like the hippies coming to blockchains, one of their first objections is you're wasting all this computer power. You're wasting all this energy. Um, you're wasting all this uh, network resources because they're constantly chatting with each other on the network. These computers are broadcasting packets to each other all the time. And they just say it's wasteful. Um, but, uh, and, and I think that was an argument that a lot of people make. And even I kind of fell for that one where I was like, okay, you know, eventually someone will come up with a better solution than proof of work and go to proof of stake or a few other kind of ideas that have been thrown around. And then Nick just recently wrote this brilliant piece uh, on social scalability. Um, and by the way, you got a doctorate recently, an honorary doctorate. Oh yeah, at the University Universidad Francisco Marroquin yeah. in uh, Guatemala. What, what is your doctorate in? It's in social sciences and also an honorary professorship as well. So yeah, it's great. It's a very you're long... The only, you're the only social scientist, I think, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> that, that can talk at this level. Well, so, I mean, that's the kind of honorary doctorate they give. Yeah. 
But yeah, it's, but it's, it's a great list of luminaries. So yeah. yeah, I'm very honored to have that. Yeah, they cited your social scalability article. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so uh, the social scalability argument, I thought is a really powerful one. I don't know if you want to uh, try and summarize that for the listeners. Um, sure. So the idea, basic idea is that if you look at a graph of human capabilities, it's basically flat. We're the same IQs we had, you know, um, except for there's a small thing called the Flynn effect. But other than that, um, you know, 100,000 years ago, our brains were the, roughly the same size as they are today. Mm-hmm. And uh, computers, on the other hand, have been, you know, doubling every few years their capabilities um, in various ways, their memory, their CPU power, uh, network bandwidth, and so forth. And so, and you can think of this in the future and get into all sorts of speculation about the future. But what I like to think of it as we have this whole surplus we've built up of resources. And yet we're still doing things institutionally with armies of bureaucrats and stuff, very similar to what we're doing, you know, when computers were, you know, a thousandth of the power they are now or a millionth of the power they are now. Yeah, or what they were doing in the Mongol Empire. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So in any case, so can we do some substitutions? Can we substitute, take advantage of this great surplus? So computer scientists are normally, and engineers are normally trained to think, optimize the machine, make the machine itself really efficient. What I'm saying is that you can think the other way. Are there ways to make the machine a lot less efficient and give you some greater capability so that, such as, for example, the ability of somebody in Albania to pay somebody in Zimbabwe um, without going through a, a trusted intermediary or human bureaucracy, ways to do that, you know, even if they cost a lot more and look really bad to an engineer who likes to think about efficiency. So, and Bitcoin's a great example of that. It's a proof of work um, as part of its security and in, in my mind to, to create that that scarcity. Yes, yeah, stepping back for a second, what separates humans from other animals is that we are social across genetic boundaries. So, you know, even Neanderthals, uh, you can have 150 Neanderthals on a battlefield because they're all genetically related, but you can have 5,000 Homo sapiens on the battlefield because they believe in the abstract idea of Christianity. Right. Uh, and they can communicate that story to each other. Right. And so Bitcoin uh, enables a form of social scalability where it allows now humans who don't know each other, who don't trust each other, who may never see each other again and don't even reveal their identities or locations to each other to still transact securely, not just with money, but also with contracts, any complex logic they can dream up that they can code up. They can do it through this very slow and very inefficient computer, mm-hmm. but it removes all these layers of humans, bureaucrats, and toll takers from right. the operation. Right. So you're able to exceed the the Dunbar number, right? Exactly. The, yeah, the 150 people Dunbar number. So you're basically trading computational scalability for social scalability. Well, so, and, and just to maybe put it another way, and I'd love to be corrected if this isn't right, but uh, there's, a, there's another quote of yours, Nick, that I really like. Trusted third parties are security holes. Oh, yeah. I think relates to this very nicely. And there's a bit on blockchain computers that I think is relevant. So why, why make the trade-off? Why allow all of this inefficiency, right? And I'm not going to read this entire thing, but it, it's the blockchain computer, this distributed blockchain computer is much slower and more costly than a web server. By one very rough estimate, about 10,000 times slower and more costly. But since on the blockchain, you're, you're running the portion of an application that needs to be the most reliable and secure, what you call a fiduciary called, uh, mm-hmm. code, because the downside risk is so high, you can afford to have... Mm-hmm tons of inefficiency, particularly with hardware that is dropping in cost and increasing in capability year on year, right? Yeah, we've we've accumulated this great 
great hardware capacity surplus that, that we're only starting to take advantage of. And so you can use that to do like the proof of work, the very the strong security protocols that take some computational effort. And the, also the making the copies. We have lots of memory, lots of disk space, lots of bandwidth, not vast amounts, but enough to you can, you can take a small transaction and replicate it around the world, make thousands of copies. That helps create that fly in amber effect where you, you can't deny it later because everybody's got copies of it. In, in a way, like uh, I think you had a definition of social scalability in your article. Um, or it's not precise, but close enough where you basically said one way to estimate how socially scalable a technology is, is by how many people can use it. Right. Mm. And uh, when it comes to cash today, like like the US dollar, it's you know accepted, probably the most widely accepted currency in the world, but we're still talking hundreds of millions to maybe a billion people mm. um, can really use it in their everyday life. Whereas Bitcoin in theory, when it's, a, when it's adopted, can be used by anyone to pay anyone, as long as you're connected to the internet and everyone's connecting to the internet. It scales better. I'm going to ask a question that came up a lot, and it's one that I don't have any any ability to answer. Is it possible to for any government entity to regulate Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies out of existence? If so, where would you put the likelihood of, of such a thing happening or being able to be implemented? Well, I mean, because these copies are all over the world, you're, they're never going to get rid of these copies. I mean, he's always going to have the transaction history and can start it up again. Yep. So uh, that, in a sense, makes it very difficult to regulate. There are easier parts of it to regulate, such as the exchanging of um, fiat currency, your local currency, to Bitcoin and back and forth. Those still happen through centralized exchanges, which both makes them fairly easy to regulate and also makes them insecure. Trusted third parties are security holes. So if you want to get in and out of Bitcoin, you're usually doing it through these um, centralized exchanges. And that's where the vast majority of of thefts and hacks of, of Bitcoin have occurred. These exchanges. Yeah, the exchanges essentially end up like banks. They're honeypots for regulators. They're honeypots for thieves. Is there, how do you buy or sell, say, Bitcoin without going through... You, today you do that through a central through an exchange uh, there's also sort of local meetups there's like uh there's these sites uh, like local bitcoins and there's a few others there's a big one coming up in china now where you can just sort of coordinate a meetup with somebody in a dark alley and you exchange cash for bitcoin um so people can fall back to that and and the volume on those kinds of distributed exchanges has gone up a lot um if you look at BitTorrent, which is the file sharing technology, which sure. accounts for like a ridiculous amount of internet traffic, Bram Cohen invented it. Um, you know, that thing on a given day can account for being a quarter to half of internet traffic. And you can bet the governments have been trying to shut that down because right now the governments are overzealous and nothing in so much as enforcing copyright law. I mean, you want to drive, you know, you want to drop the full weight of the federal government on you. Um, you either engage in, you know, terrorist activity or you violate copyright law. <laughs> <laughs> They're like roughly equivalent, <laughs> right? They'll drop helicopters in your house in New Zealand, you know, ask Kim.com for violating copyright law, even if you've never set foot in the U.S. He lived such an understated lifestyle yeah, too. I don't exactly. know how he was so ever... subtle. I don't even know how they caught on to him. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, I don't. I don't think governments can really shut it down. Uh, not only that, but any government that really embraces Bitcoin or any of these cryptocurrency doesn't have to be Bitcoin. They could even kind of start up a new one if they wanted to. Um, is just going to benefit so much from really owning the money that's native to the internet. You know, I call Bitcoin the Internet of Money because it's uh, it's really 
native to how code works. So if you really want to future proof yourself, it's like, it's like, imagine if the US cracked down on it and said no more cryptocurrencies, that would be saying, like saying no more HTTP, right? And the country that did adopt HTTP, and by the way, this is the HTTP of money would end up so much better off that you just be shooting yourself in the head. Um, so I think smart people, smart money in the US already recognizes that. And so it's seeping up into the government where they're figuring out like, yeah, we could, we could be draconian about this. We'll just drive it out of the country. It's already happening to some extent. A lot of the ICOs that are happening are happening out of Switzerland or Gibraltar. Um, those teams are leaving the US actually, because especially places like New York have been very heavy handed in their regulations. Um, so you're just driving out innovation. What is the incentive for say New York to be supportive or at least maybe cast a blind eye to development of this type of technology. Just like the internet took out Hollywood with Netflix and uh, you know um, uh, Spotify, and it took out newspapers with publishing and Twitter and Facebook, um, and it's taken out uh, you know all kinds of industries. Um, the internet is going to fundamentally change and possibly take out the finance industry as we know it. And the new finance industry is going to settle wherever the home of innovation is for smart contracts and cryptocurrency. This is my belief, obviously, not investment advice. But um, I think this is Silicon Valley's replacement of a lot of the infrastructure of finance. And so if New York chooses to drive that out, then New York will no longer be the center of finance. Got it. I, I, every time I go to New York, I'm actually highly entertained because I see all these huge towers. I see all these people in suits. And I know that 90% of them will be obsolete within 20 years. <laughs> nice horse and buggy, pal. I like the yeah, current play. I would, I would not be thinking about going into investment banking right now because a lot of that job is going to be automated, commercial banking automated. You know, the bankers were the miners of the last generation. They got paid in the currency to secure the currency. So when the Fed wants to... Yeah, and they weren't even the miners, they were the traders. Yeah, when the Fed wants to distribute currency, they give it to the banks. And guess what? The banks have, the banks have sticky fingers. And then they allocate it out to the rest of us very sparingly. Um, and the new bankers are the miners. The new Fed is the cryptographers. But really, the new owners of the infrastructure are the holders of the coin, which is everybody, or could be everybody. Is cryptocurrency, or let's say Bitcoin inversely correlated to any particular other asset classes. For instance, when people are fearful of, say, currency devaluation, they've, they might run to gold, right? We've seen this in places like Argentina, seen in the US, seen all over. Do you see that also with Bitcoin in any particular pattern? Yeah, they, they, they definitely are a store of value because Bitcoin, there's only going to be 21 million ever. The whole way the protocol is designed, you can't create a single one more. And a bunch have been lost. So, you know, because they're hard to secure. Uh, Hold on. <laughs> How did they get lost? Well, you could lose your key. So you can oh, come, come up with some really complicated... <laughs> you forget your goddamn Or number. you're trying to defend it. You're trying to hide it from hackers. So you come up with some really elaborate scheme on how to secure it. And then you lose it. <laughs> or people have lost the computer that it was on, you know. So what is the... Have you heard any catastrophic story? Oh, sure. There's stories of people with like, you know, digging through uh, uh, garbage dumps with bulldozers trying to find that old computer, which they threw out, which had, you know, 10,000 Bitcoin on yeah. it. And, you, need, you need a good hardware wallet to make encrypted backups. Mm -hmm. So that you're neither stolen from nor lose lose your key. Yeah. So I mean, there, there there's a finite number of Bitcoin. So I, Bitcoin is electronic gold. There is a generation of kids who will grow up that as long as they've been alive, like my son, when he's older, as long as he's been alive, there will have been gold and there will have been Bitcoin. You think the likelihood of Bitcoin in any way 
falling out of reach for people like your son is close to zero. I don't. I think Bitcoin itself may suffer because it has governance issues uh, and another currency, like we should talk about Ethereum and some of the others that are coming right. up, uh, might take its place. But the idea that blockchain computers are going to go away is ridiculous. That's like saying the internet's going to go away. Uh, it's just too fundamental of a technology. Uh, barring a total mathematical breakthrough that obsoletes all encryption, which would also be the end of the commercial internet as we know it, uh, I think that some kind of blockchain computer will dominate currency, store of value, contract law, uh, and any kind of financial instrument, prediction markets, all kinds of things uh, in the future. So to my, to my kids, they will choose electronic gold. They will choose Bitcoin and its successors over real gold. Nick, what is, this is another one of these words that comes up at dinner parties and various conversations, and I kind of nod along because I'm embarrassed to ask questions uh, fearing I'm the only one at the party. Kind of like everybody goes to summer camp and they all miss their mom, but no one wants to talk about it and admit. Uh, Ethereum. What is Ethereum? So so we talk about the blockchain computer. So Bitcoin, I don't know if your audience can harken back to the beginning of Apple, mm -hmm. Apple computer where Steve Wozniak was working at Hewlett Packard on a scientific calculator and it had a certain limited scripting language that, you know, specialized for... Uh, that it wasn't a full-fledged general purpose language that you could do lots with. But what he did was he got excited that his circuitry, you know, chips were getting cheap enough that you could do the full-fledged, what they call Turing machine after Alan Turing, because he's one of the inventors of it. I'm a full-fledged general purpose uh, machine that can do any mathematically feasible computation. And so Bitcoin is like a restricted computer. It does certain things specialized like the multi-sig I talked about and certain other, other things it can do. But Ethereum is, is a much more general purpose computer and it also stores long-term state better, which is a, it's a technical thing, but it's an, an important difference. So basically, um, Ethereum has great potential for this reason. It has potential to do smart contracts uh, much better than uh, Bitcoin does. The uh, drawback going to this is it also increases the attack surface. It, it's what Ethereum's doing is riskier. The attack surface. Attack surface. So you, you can think of, of your house as having an attack surface. There's windows and doors and places where people can get in, right? Well, the, the Ethereum thing has more surfaces that people could potentially get in because people are doing more things. Got it. Just more vulnerabilities that correlate to more functionality. Right. So it's um, a much more flexible computer. So you can talk to it in many, many more ways. So you can inject bad code in, you can hack it in many, many more ways. And another thing that makes it risky is that uh, it's newer. It's, it's um, not much more advanced than where in terms of its maturity and getting out all the bugs and stuff as uh, Bitcoin was when people were paying 10,000 Bitcoin for a pizza. <laughs> and, and yet, what's the Ethereum market cap now? I think it just crossed like eight or nine billion today. Yeah, so but the market caps are fuzzy because if you calculate it properly based on the future issuance of the coin, it might actually be approaching Bitcoin's market cap. It might be in the 20 billion range oh. once you anyway, take inflation into account. Anyway, even with just the, the 10 millions out there or 8 billions out there now, that's, that's a lot more money than Bitcoin had at, at the same stage of maturity. So I definitely say it's at a riskier state, but it's also much greater potential. Yeah, I mean, this is, so now we're, we can, I think we've done a lot of backgrounding. Uh, 
And I think what people really want to hear from Nick about is a little bit more of the advanced stuff, right? Because you did Bitcoin, you did smart contracts. So they kind of want to know where you think the future is headed. And I know the future is impossible to predict. And again, it's not investment advice, but very generically, what platforms are you most excited about? Where, where would you spend your time if you were like a young, fresh person walking into this space? So I am excited about um, Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. And there's a, a what's called a side chain for Bitcoin called Rootstock that they hope to uh, combine together um, the best of Ethereum with, with Bitcoin on the chain so you can trade the Bitcoin currency but do the Turing complete full-fledged smart contracts. The potential there is that, and there very well could be other Turing, I mean, there's a few other Turing complete ones out there and yeah. probably quite a bit more in the works um, as well. Anyway, the potential for this stuff is that doing cross-border things and uh, other things where you're, you're crossing a trust boundary and you don't necessarily have access to um, good legal, legal, affordable legal counsel um, for financial contracts, especially as the low-hanging fruit, because those are usually very well-defined. And uh, bureaucrats like to make complications and add all sorts of epicycles to them. But really, an option in the future and stuff, they're, they're logically and temporally pretty simple things to, to do. And... Once you get more of the underlying assets, you can do options and futures, you know, as for example, exchanging Bitcoin for Ethereum. And we, we're getting all these other tokens that are going to be on these blockchains that you'll be able to include in that. Now, if you go off blockchain, you got to kind of take a different tack. In other words, if you're connecting your smart contract to the real world. You need, to, you need to know what happened in the real world to decide whether or not to execute your smart contract. Right. So if you're doing an Apple stock, for example, because um, that's that's a traditionally defined thing that, that depends on traditional systems to make it work, incentivize Apple to pay the dividends and, and do what they do. In any case, if you want to do that, then all of a sudden you're back in the traditional financial world. And the traditional financial people know that. Right now there's like a, uh, a, a cultural disconnect that Bitcoin people have a really cool technology and, but they hate the people in the financial community and don't want to talk to them, don't want to learn from them. And the same to some extent with the Ethereum people as well. And on the other hand, the financial community people hate and don't understand blockchains and cryptocurrency. In fact, there was this whole bunch of very dubious startups that raised a bunch of money to do things they call blockchains that were they didn't have blocks. They didn't have chains. They weren't, didn't have the security <laughs> I was talking about. But the marketing people wanted to call them blockchains. They could pretend to be like Bitcoin and, you know, with the price going way up. $50 million in financing later. <laughs> yeah. Are, they, are these like most of the private blockchain companies? Yeah, I'm not going to name names, okay. but yeah. yeah. So the, the financial people don't understand that and they've gotten burned by some of these companies. So they hate, they, they, they hate it. But what really, I think for the entrepreneurial opportunity, and if some of your listeners want are looking for an entrepreneurial opportunity, is to marry these two. So take the best of traditional finance, take the best of the blockchains, um, Ethereum if you're doing sophisticated smart contracts and willing to take some risks, and Bitcoin if your main thing is, is um, cross-border payments. Take these and, and marry them together figure out ways to um, securely reflect assets on the blockchain using both traditional financial controls and bureaucracy and taking advantage of technology. I think that's the, that's the opportunity people haven't done yet because of this cultural disconnect. What would you say are some of the most important or valuable components of the traditional finance world? Like where would you start? The traditional paper world was really good. It had a thing called separation of duties where 
Um, as we talked about multiple people signing off on things and looking things, and you have to go through multiple stages. Like if you get an order, the salesperson has to give the order to the accounting department and they have to give the order to the uh, manufacturing people and everybody records it. So it's like a little mini mini paper blockchain that that people used to have. With computers, that's kind of gotten messed up and hackers can who know what they're doing can take advantage that these systems don't work as well now. But um, if you, to a great extent, you can make them work. And people do make them work, you know, with uh, stock clearing and settlement and issuance and so forth. So anyway, yeah, there there are experts in the financial community who do that. If you can if you can make them love instead of hate blockchains, then you'll have a great great skill set combination if you can get the blockchain people and those guys together. Yeah, you're you're an interesting one because you combine law and computer science to do uh, unusual things. And what you're basically saying is you can combine traditional finance and now computer science to do unusual things. And right. mm-hmm. somewhere in that intersection set, you can take a, a a process that's entirely paper and move the part of it that belongs on the blockchain on the blockchain while plugging in the paper part. Or, or, or it used to be paper and somebody just naively ported it in some naive and secure fashion to computers. And now you yeah. can use blockchains to make it secure. much more secure and trust yeah. minimized. Yeah. On the side of educating oneself. So let's say there are people, and I'm sure there are listening, who are part of the the, the traditional finance world, mm-hmm. who say, that sounds like a great idea. I want to learn how to love Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. I want to learn about this. How would you suggest they choose reliable sources of information? Because as we've noted before, it's a bit of the wild, wild west in some respects. Right? Mm-hmm. You don't have, not everyone is making disclosures about what their their mm-hmm. own portfolio might look like so there are there are a lot of sort of barbers telling you should you you should get a haircut and how would you suggest people think about that i mean if if you're technical and want to dive into the engineering and the technology of it um the bitcoin white paper is is still by far the best place to start and vitalik buterin's ethereum white paper also what was that name again vitalik buterin he's the guy guy who created or he's a lead developer on ethereum Mm -hmm. Uh, he's actually an interesting guy, young prodigy, probably like 20 or 21 now, started it when he was 18. Um, absolutely brilliant. There's a guy named Aviv Zohar who's written some great papers. One of them is on Ghost, which is what Ethereum is based on. Um, and he's got a follow-up to that whose name escapes me. And he's also written a, co-authored a great paper on attacks against Bitcoin from the underlying network. So he's one of the experts on the security of Bitcoin, which is a, a, uh, skill and knowledge set and scarce supply. So <laughs> yeah, one of the, one of the problems and opportunities here is that, uh, you know, going back to that earlier thing, it's about money being the bubble that never pops. Uh, Bitcoin is kind of a Ponzi scheme that starts with smart people. So the smartest people understand it first, then they sell it to like the people who need the cryptography explained to them, like me. And then we sell it to the people who need the next level down. And the whole thing could pop and end badly. So I'm not saying go put all your money in Bitcoin. Uh, but I think to understand blockchain computer, you sort, of, you sort of have to get into the math and the code and the hard stuff. But if you wait to figure it out, by the time everyone can figure it out with the same tools, it'll kind of be too late from an investment or earning perspective. It'll be too late from an investment pers- perspective, yeah. but not from a 
from the uh, utilization standpoint. No, of right? course not. You'll be I able mean, to use money just as we use dollars, but you're not going to be investing in something that is going to hockey stick. Yeah, the challenge for the industry is like today, Bitcoin has all these advantages over gold. You know, it's it's more uh, easily transmissible. It's uh, more subdivisible. It's more easily stored. It can be communicated by computers. But to the average person, that means nothing. All they need to, what they need to experience is they need to receive some Bitcoin in a transaction and then send some Bitcoin transaction and have that experience be so much better than every other experience they've had with money or with gold. And the tools just aren't there yet. Like right now, securing your Bitcoin for yourself is still difficult. The hardware wallets are getting better, but it's still kind of a nightmare. So I think the industry still has a decade of work to do to make cryptocurrencies live up to their potential. Uh, and the idea space is so large and there are all these companies working on it. But every year it gets a little easier to use. It has a few more use cases. It gets a little easier to store. Um, and it, and the smart contracts that are built on it become a little more interesting. Um, so that is a process. And eventually you'll be able to use Bitcoin without knowing anything about it. Just like you can use US dollars without knowing how the Federal Open Reserve Open Market Committee works and you know does lending and issues treasury bills and all that stuff. There's only a few geeks who need to know that in the world of finance. Uh, and you can just use money like it's money. Just to clarify one thing you said, you said money is the bubble that never pops. You're talking about the concept of money. Yeah, the concept of money because yeah. individual currencies can well, like certainly if, sure i mean if tomorrow <laughs> lived in argentina between <laughs> like 2000 2004 yeah if tomorrow we all believe that the us dollar is just a green piece of paper and i can't eat it i can't do anything with it or if like aliens came and took over the world and you know we offered them little green pieces of paper they just use them <laughs> to start a bonfire or something right <laughs> so it's the money is just a concept and yep. we have to agree on what that scarce element is right. and today that scarcity is enforced by governments with guns and central banks and it breaks down national borders and the people who secure that money for you take a huge tax, roughly a third of the economy in exchange for it. Uh, and eventually it will be a distributed network of computers um, acting in self-interest who are going to secure that the scarcity of that money. And hopefully their tax is going to be a lot lower. <laughs> what else would, uh, you, you're obviously much more on the pulse of this, but what other topics could be beyond my pay grade? It probably is, but should we explore with with nick yeah i think i think uh you know just talking about blockchains in general so we started with bitcoin the blockchain uh which is around transferring money there's uh ethereum blockchain uh, and others like it uh which are about computation and running like very slow but very uh trust minimized reliable contracts um, what other uses can you see for blockchains coming up that you think maybe a little far-fetched, maybe 10 years out, but what's, you know, what's the possibility space? Well, I mean, one of the possibilities is that I'm really excited about the cross-border thing um, to have, say, grandmothers in India and uh, teenagers in somebody's basement in Indiana doing what people nor formerly thought were sophisticated financial contracts, such as options, futures, et cetera, you know, through this online vending machine. Um, in the cloud, that's the blockchain. So that that's an exciting and probably to many people disturbing possibility um, that I think is going to be coming up in the next ten to twenty years. Yeah, I mean, so uh, you could have like people loaning each other money or creating credit instruments or engaging mm -hmm. in prediction markets and things like that. Yeah. What do you mean by prediction markets? Well, I'll, I'll talk about one that I, that the insurance people are working on, which is related, which is um, 
parametric contracts. So normally an insurance will pay out, you know, if you get damages from a flood and they have to come estimate your damages, which is basically a, a wet human exercise and, you know, eyeballing how moldy your wall is and how much you got flooded and stuff. But uh, another, a, a drier way to do this is called parametric contracts where like if you're a hotel in, in an area you got hit by a hurricane, you can measure how much business you lost on your accounting books. And um, you can parameterize that and basically have your, smart contract payoff if your books go below a certain time or pay you more as the farther your books go down. So that insures kind of what you really want to insure. They, the hotel really wanted to insure, which is their business. And uh, it's also drier. It can be done by software verifying, you know, what the books are. So you can make a smart contract out of that. And there are other parameterized contracts as well, based on other things that computers can sense and measure. Yeah, in prediction markets are, you know, people can actually make predictions and get paid if their predictions are correct or lose money if their predictions are wrong. And then these prediction markets can also serve as uh, arbiters of truth and pricing um, into these smart contracts. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, in, in Nick's case, Nick's example, the ho- you, you tie in directly to the hotel's books, the hotel's lost revenue, and so you know whether or not to pay the hotel. But if there's a flood, I want to say, was the hotel in the affected area? Was the hotel itself affected? You need now what's called an oracle. You need someone who's basically going to go in there and say, like, yes, this happened. No, they didn't. And prediction markets, through very sophisticated engineering, which I think is beyond the scope of this conversation, basically try and pay that person for telling the truth in a reliable way. Uh, and so you can use that to to cross the divide between the wet space and dry space, or from the the real world into computers to have them do these things. You can see you can see the insurance markets being completely overhauled by blockchain computers. Hmm. And insurance is a huge industry; it's gigantic. A lot of that just belongs in the blockchain. I don't think you're going to have like uh, you know bankers in Bermuda uh, doing this 20 years from now. You do not think? I don't think. Yeah, because of the technical barriers to understanding. Uh, or challenges, let's say, lead, I think, the space to be susceptible to, say, charlatans for very smart who can fool people who don't understand technical aspects. There's a lot of scams in the space. How do you, what are the characteristics of charlatans or scams in the space? You know, it used to be easier to spot. (laughs) The louder they talked, the scammier they were. Now I think it's they've the scammers have gotten really sophisticated. Some of these scammers are in like version five of their scam. So they'll be selling some coin and they'll be talking about how it like enables some functionality when in reality the code doesn't, or they have some backdoor where they're selling you a scarce coin, but they can print a lot of them. So in that sense, you know, there's there's a couple of coins that are sort of in the top set that are regarded as top flight, uh, that are legit, but you what are those? Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are kind of the best known ones. Then there's sort of a second tier contender list of, uh, uh, you know, Zcash, Monero, uh, Litecoin, et cetera. You know, there's some new ones coming up like Tezos. These seem more legit, but you you have to know your stuff and do your homework. It's not something where I would recommend you just run out and buy. Um, and then there's a long tail of coins where there's a diamond in the rough here or there, uh, but there's a lot of junk too. But what's attracting people is just how much money you can make in this space. You know, Bitcoin has basically doubled in value every year since its founding. It's a, it's and you know you do that for eight ten years and you end up with a very very steep curve. Um, something like Ethereum, if you bought it when it was sold in the original presale today, and just a few years later you'd be sitting on hundreds and hundreds of times your money and you'd be fully liquid. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but this is not unrecognized. The space has increased in value so much. The market cap of all the cryptocurrencies is more than double just in the last quarter. So there's a lot of hot money flowing in. Um, will it flow back out? Possibly. Are we in a bubbly environment? Probably. Uh, will this bubble pop? Nobody knows. Will it pop across the board or will it pop selectively? Yeah, or will it pop later than a different pop so it won't matter because there'll be a flight of money from one asset class to another. Exactly. Or will the value switch from Bitcoin to Ethereum? Will Bitcoin fork into two competing coins because people are arguing over whether the block size should be increased or not? There's so much craziness. Just to just to pause on that word, because this, when I was attempting to educate myself and doing a pretty mediocre job of it, this word fork came up over and over again. And so in my mind, I'm envisioning, because I've been reading a lot about the uh, so the making of the modern world and Genghis Khan and all this stuff, Pimujin. And anyway, thanks, Dan Carlin, for the hardcore history. Uh, you would always, you would have these internal factions that would then split off as two or more separate yes. groups. In this context, though, what does fork mean, and how should how should I think about it in a coherent way? This is this is open source code, so I can take right. Bitcoin, I can create a copy tomorrow, and I can change it so that all the benefits go to Naval, <laughs> and right, and that's a fork of Bitcoin that I'll call Naval Coin. Now, in reality, people hopefully do more interesting forks. So there's a fork of Bitcoin called Litecoin, which uses a different mining algorithm, a different way to authenticate the miners. There's another fork called Zcash, uh, which uses different privacy routines to basically allow for private transactions so other people can't look in the ledger and know who, who spoke to who. Got it. So not every node has a full ledger. Correct. Well, and every node has a full ledger, but it's cryptographically... Uh, hidden, so you can't tell who sent who how much money. Now, now in the forks you just talked about, um, uh, Zcash and Litecoin, they started over from scratch. They they started their own transaction history from scratch. There's another more troublesome kind of fork where you don't start from scratch. You're just upgrading the current software with the same transact with the ongoing transaction history, and you're trying to convince people to follow. And it's become a very political political process. Yeah, to you're try fighting to over the current transactions. To, uh, to uh and and since you know bitcoin has you know the the uh 20 plus billion billion dollar value um you know people would much rather you know make put their favorite idea into bitcoin than go off and start their own cryptocurrency from scratch it's like bitcoin only better yeah 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 <laughs> so there's there's tremendous political fights over over upgrades um, in this space. Yeah, and that's, so, that's where the bad yeah, the, blood comes in. <laughs> there's a huge debate right now in the Bitcoin world uh, where they're fighting over. Um, and, and the basic question is, do you increase the size of the ledger? Um, so it's, it's the block size debate. Do you increase the size of the blocks uh, to hold more transactions? So then you can bring down the cost of each transaction so that I can go and buy coffee in Bitcoin. Or do you leave Bitcoin alone and treat it more as like a Swiss bank where you only move around money rarely in large quantities? And the smaller transactions are done on another layer on top where you create another software layer on top. They call it like Lightning Network as an example of that layer, which can be used for very small, very fast transactions, micropayments or not even micro, but even like paying $5 for, you know, at Starbucks. Because Bitcoin, literally every time you do a transaction, there are thousands to tens of thousands of computers all over the world that are recording that, replicating that and storing that for all of time. That's a lot of work. Um, Whereas you could probably run all of Visa's computational power on a single iPad today. Um, but it's much more, centralized systems are much more efficient, but they're much less secure. That's kind of the trade-off. Yeah. And so um, this, um, yeah, I mean, the first choice isn't for the blockchain itself really a viable choice in terms of scaling as it scales from 
you know, 10 times the value of transactions, value per second of transactions is today. Um, because the, the, um, capacity is limited. There's these full nodes that are running that require a certain bandwidth. They have to talk to a lot of people, make a lot of copies to replicate the stuff around. And so there's a second layer Naval was talking about that really the people buying the coffee are going to have to transition to. And this has caused a lot of friction because um, people are going to have to transition for the, the small everyday purchases from Bitcoin, the blockchain itself, to this second layer. And um, there's competing designs for the second layer and so forth. And so there's, there's plenty of, of things to cause political friction. Yeah, going back to the money definition, the debate is, is Bitcoin really a store of value or is it a medium of exchange? Uh, and, and so, Nick, I know you don't want to get into the middle of the politics of it, but just from a pure computer science perspective, like if you were designing, you know, if you're redesigning a Bitgold today and you wanted to incorporate some of these learnings, where would you fall in on? Would you go for larger blocks? Would you go for a second layer? Oh, no, I definitely go for a second layer. I mean, I designed Bitcoin gold with two layers because... And can you explain just, I must have lost something, just what that second layer is one more time? The first layer is the blockchain itself. The Bitcoin, we call the capital B blockchain, doing the secure transactions and the ones you can do from Albania to Zimbabwe without a trusted third party going through the blockchain. And the second layer and the ability to grow the transactions per second on that is very limited. Um, you can grow the value per transaction quite substantially, but the ability to grow transactions per second is limited because those have a certain size and you have to make copies of them around it and so forth. I see. So the second layer would be for the coffee, the pizza. Yeah. And so as this grows, as more and more people start using this, they're competing for that, that limited block space and the fees are going up. And so if you want to have a cup of coffee without having to pay as much fee as you paid for the coffee, you know, in two or three or four years from now, um, you're going to have to use one of these side chain or what I call peripheral financial network that it's collateralized on the blockchain. It's almost trust as trust minimized as the blockchain itself, but it's for lower value transactions that only periodically settle on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about the, I suppose, third party tools, sort of application layer uh, exchanges and so on, the user experience being suboptimal currently. But what if, if you could wave a magic wand and make certain things happen, make certain people invest in, say, Bitcoin, what, is, what would be required to help Bitcoin cross the chasm, to be, become much more mainstream? Maybe it's just inevitable and it's a matter of time. That could be it. But if you wanted to accelerate the process and it was like, okay, we, you can make, wave a magic wand and you can choose any group of people to invest, say, $10 billion into Bitcoin or whatever the number is, and then fix X, Y, and Z. That would help mass adoption and the crossing of the chasm. What, what are the things that come to mind? Well, I mean, currencies have traditionally been associated with governments because especially in the modern times, they're the largest creditor and the largest debtor. And so they're, they have the plurality of the say in what is the, you know, the, uh, the money other people are going to use. Um, so right now, Bitcoin is being used for various niche purposes where the fiat um, system, which um, is a very, what they call permission system. So a blacklist people, I've met people at Bitcoin conferences. Um, they've got plenty of money and stuff, but they've been blacklisted. They can't open bank accounts um, and so forth. So there's... Yeah, actually the, hard, the hardest thing. So. No, not necessarily. It could be just their... Um, 
you know, they're suspected of something or um, the money laundering laws are such that, you know, if somebody does something that looks suspicious, you have to block it. And so there's a lot of of that kind of very erroneous, error-prone permissioning that goes on with uh, the bank system that doesn't go on with Bitcoin. Yeah, or PayPal. I was just thinking of a friend from New Zealand for a host of sort of coincidental factors just had a huge, huge nightmare in his hand that took months to resolve. Yeah, the, the way I participate in uh, cryptocurrency investing these days, because I don't want to have to worry about how do you procure it, how do you secure it, uh, or even what to buy, is I invest in hedge funds in this space. Uh, and I've actually joined one loosely as a venture partner. Um, and the biggest problem they have is getting bank accounts because the regulators just dig in too much. If you're sending money in and out of Bitcoin or Ethereum exchanges, um, it's just something they haven't seen and they don't wanna deal with it because banks don't, they don't have a system to charge you more for new weird stuff. Um, So just plugging into the existing banking infrastructure is hard. And that's probably where if if countries do crackdowns, um, it'll probably happen in that area. So how do you fix it? Or if if you had close to infinite resources and could just, make certain things happen to yeah. facilitate good things or prevent bad things? Yeah. I mean, first uh, I would uh, plug them into the existing banking system in a much better way. The the existing banks, you know, should accept that if there's a legitimate player here, they're only working with currencies that aren't scams. Maybe they have some, you know, bonded collateral or something like that. And, and they're legit actors. Um, they should be part of the banking system because this is the future of the banking system. There must be banks because banks there are, are in they, all they, shapes they, and sizes. They do exist. They do exist. It's just they're much harder to find than you would think. Um, so they're, and they're more in warm- Romania down the street from twenty uh, Western yeah. unions. And they're they're warming up to it. The forward-looking ones are warming yeah. up to it. But we're talking about going from like one bank in the country to like ten banks in the country, you know, or five. So it's still not a large set. And these are small banks generally. I feel like Singapore should get on that. Yeah, it's a good test case. This is why some of these companies are going to Singapore, actually. Yeah. And the, the, actually, the, 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 the worrying trend that I'm seeing is a lot of the more interesting development teams and companies are all locating overseas. Yeah, fleeing overseas. Yeah. One thing is that Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies, they operate under such different principles of the banking system that people in the banking system, they look at you know these debates about block size and the people calling each other names and the basically low level of trust that exists because it can exist in the Bitcoin community. Um, and they're horrified because you couldn't run a bank that way. You, you, you have to, uh, you have to be much more polite and careful. Right, and because they're wet. Word, uh, right. Right. Because it, it's, it's a wet social system rather than based primarily on dry computer science. Yeah. You have a, so, you have a system here that allows anonymous trolls to engage in complex financial transactions so they can, they can scream at each other and call each other names while still doing business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the power of the system, but, but it looks it looks horrific to anyone else from the outside. <laughs> and that's why you have this cultural gap is people in the banking system look at this and they go, oh, this is this is terrible. <laughs> this can't possibly work. <laughs> but to, to actually answer your question as to like what infrastructure needs to exist to make this space happen, security is a big issue. I think your average person today, if they buy coin, they don't know how to deal with what's called custody, which is just how do you hold on to it in a way that uh, if you if you don't go overboard in security, you get hacked. And if you go overboard in security, you're going to forget your password or lose the private you're key. You're going to be bulldozing. And, yeah, and you're, then uh, you've got a bulldozer going through a garbage dump. Through, um, garbage you know, or, your, or your kid's playing with a computer and wipes out your, your wallet file. And there's no way to get it back. Yeah. Um, so I think the, secure, the, the custody has to be solved. And as Nick mentioned earlier, there are hardware wallets that are out there um, that are starting to get pretty good. Um, they're getting good enough now that 
you know, the sophisticated people can use them, but eventually they'll have to get so good that the average person can just use them without having to think too much. Yeah. One of the interesting things here is that Nick's blog is called Unenumerated. And I'm going to let him explain what that means. Well, yeah. So the tagline is an endless variety of topics. It might, it's going to come to an end someday, but uh, um, I don't limit myself basically is what it means on the topic. If I, if I think of something, it'll probably be relevant somehow, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. So um, I, I, I don't want to like peg myself as a certain into a certain subject matter, basically, is what it means. Yeah, and so I think it's a larger point where Nick doesn't pigeonhole himself in his interests or his identity. Uh, and so that allows him to be more free and explore a wider range of intellectual topics. And so that's why I really enjoy reading the blog. And so that gives me sort of the next set of questions, which are all around just random things on your blogs that, are, that I've read or things that I've heard you talk about, um, which may not necessarily relate to Bitcoin or blockchains. Um, now, you were the first to really convincingly argue, um, and this goes way back, about why microtransactions on the internet uh, were much less likely than people thought. Because when I was growing up on the internet in the late 90s, everyone thought microtransactions were just around the corner. What would be and, an example of a microtransaction? Uh, it's like every time I hit a web page with, with an article, I pay 10 cents to read that web page. Or uh, every time I listen to a song, I pay a penny to listen to that song. Hmm. Well, it goes to a distinction I made earlier, that computational costs versus um, our mental costs. And the computational costs have gotten a lot cheaper and our brain's still all the same size. So when you're doing a transaction, you're doing a, a uh, thought in your brain about, is it worth it? And that thought itself is costly. And it's as costly now as it's ever been. Um, modulo, you know, you get a few extra market prices and some more information, but the, the, our brain is still the same size. So um, just because computer scientists were thinking, well, because we've reduced the cost so much, now we can do these really tiny, tiny things um, because we can do things much tinier in a penny. But the trouble is our brains can't handle it. Computers could, but our brains can't. So that's what the idea of mental transaction costs. It's the mental burden. Right. And mm -hmm. so there's a quote that uh, I really enjoyed, and I'm going to try to not take us too off track, but there is no track. That's the there good news. No track. <laughs> <laughs> this is... Uh, Alfred North Whitehead. So, quote, it is a profoundly erroneous truism repeated by all copybooks and by eminent people when they are making speeches that we should cultivate the habit of thinking about what we are doing. The precise opposite is the case. Civilization advances by extending the number of important operations which we can perform without thinking about them. End quote. Is this applied elsewhere in your life uh, outside of blockchain thinking about? code and so on? I mean, do you, are there ways that you minimize cognitive burden in other ways in your life? Minimize cognitive burden in or, other or ways. Or just making these small decisions, sort of cognitive microtransactions. Yeah, I would have to think about that for other things. I know what I was thinking there also, that's a, he was being quoted by Frederick Hayek, who was talking about um, how knowledge is distributed in markets. And so markets have traditionally been a tool where we can communicate what we want and how much um, we have for it and stuff. And that really economized. We're only accumulating, you know, we're only using a few numbers instead of, you know, going on and on about what we want and how much we need and how much we deserve it more than the other guy and so forth. So that right there, it's a tool of social scalability because it reduces what could be a long and drawn out argument over, you know, to a, to a few numbers. No, I was, I was asking, we obviously 
don't have to get into it because there may not be a ready answer, but because I was, I was with a friend, very, very successful investor, close buddy of mine. We were walking through the airport, just having a conversation. And he said, no, I've realized that I optimize now. I used to optimize everything. He said, now I optimize one or two things. Mm -hmm. And for everything else, it's just good enough. I basically de-optimize everything else. Mm -hmm. And it's made me in his mind, incredibly more effective by actively de-optimizing, which, uh, which I find an interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, you, you just can't focus on everything. Like Charlie Munger is a famously bad driver. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? He's a, probably a menace on the road. And it's a good, he probably takes Uber now, hopefully. Um, but what's the point of being a good driver today, right? Especially if you have some other scope in your life where you can add unique value. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in fact, so reading your blog, there are all these other little gems that I've found uh, that... Can we go back to word or uh, or name origin for one second? Sure. Does unenumerated have anything to do with the Ninth Amendment of the United States Constitution? It does relate to that too, because unenumerated rights, meaning, you know, there's new things going to happen with technology and other unexpected things in the future, and you need to f- define rights about, around those. And so you don't want to limit yourself to just that old list of, you know... We have a right to a free printing press, but we don't have a right to to speak freely, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or so forth. And uh, so you you uh, have to adapt um, old ideas to the future. Yeah. So basically, just because the right is not explicitly listed there doesn't mean you don't have it. In right. fact, all the unenumerated rights you have by default, mm-hmm. and it's only the ones that are actually restricted are the ones that are restricted. And that's that's a, something that I think our government and constitution scholars of the day just completely forget as shown by the whole surveillance debate. I mean, it shouldn't mm-hmm. even be a debate. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's no, I mean, the right to privacy is very clear. And even if it's not explicitly spelled out, our phones are private right. uh, and our computers are private and our conversations are private. The ways of thinking, you know, the, 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 the process of thought itself is kind of interesting, right? After a while, you get introspective enough and you're like, how am I doing on my thinking itself? And one of the things that we run into online a lot is people jump on any little contradiction, right? If yep. I say something on Twitter, uh, and if I said something different a year ago, or maybe out of context in a different conversation, people will jump on me and say, well, that's not what you said, and so-and-so, it's like a big gotcha, right? So I think we have this uh, false uh, consistency that we all try and throw up, when the reality is we're always changing our minds. And you know, I forget who said it, but somebody said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, <laughs> right? Um, so I, I've gotten... I've gotten okay with this concept of contradicting myself, right? Walt Whitman also said, like, I contradict myself very well then. I contradict myself. I am vast. I contain multitudes, right? So I've gotten used to that. Uh, but then I encountered a concept in your writing, Nick, that I liked, which is which is called quantum thought. I don't know if you even remember this. Um, do, you, do you remember what I'm talking sure. about? Sure. So, well, that comes from law school. So law, law school, they teach a very different way of thinking in that you need to take... Um, you know, both the defendants and the plaintiff side of the issue, both sides of the issue, and run down the arguments as if each one of them is true. They contradict each other, of course, or um, at least the conclusions and and some of the sub-arguments contradict each other. And so I, I, I... Compare this to Schrodinger's cat. Maybe it's alive. Maybe it's dead. Maybe the defendant's <laughs> it's guilty. It's maybe the cat in the box. Maybe right? they're not. Right. And uh, you have to keep both of these in your mind at once. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, this is not how we are socially taught to think, 
socially we're taught you have to have a point of view, you have to have an answer, you have to pick a side, pick your tribe, fit in and then defend it mm-hmm. um, and be consistent. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reality is really complicated. <laughs> and so if you're really smart and you're operating on the edge of any field or trying to figure out anything new, you probably need to have quantum thought. You probably have to hold both states in your head and constantly be weighing probabilities. And if you're not shifting back and forth, then either you're not doing something cutting edge or you're not being intellectually honest with yourself. about mm. So I have, I have a question for you about this. And I'll just start with just an anecdote, which was uh, I was at a friend's house recently and it was a gathering of 20 people or so. And there was some structure to the weekend and people were broken out into groups to have various discussions. Everyone there, very intelligent, normally highly rational, and politics was the the topic of the day. And it just devolved into acid spitting and craziness almost immediately, with the exception of one session. And the reason that session was different is that the moderator said, before we get started... I want to go around the room and everyone needs to pick one piece. It could be a tiny piece of the opposite side, the person they disagree with, and just argue for its validity for even 60 seconds and go around the room and did that. And it took 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then everyone was much more open-minded and patient Mm -hmm. and productive in the Mm -hmm. conversation. So my question for you leading off of that is, how have you trained yourself to practice quantum thought or how would you recommend someone develop that? Because it's not something that most folks think about. It's certainly something historically I didn't dedicate a lot of time to thinking about. I was always more concerned with defending whatever position. Yeah. I, I feel like everyone else should be engaging in it. <laughs> Which I should stick to my positions because they're correct. No, well, I mean, it's good. It, it took, you know, quite a few loss takes a few law school tests to get used to it. So one thing you can do is take the first year of law school and, <laughs> and learn how to do this. But imagining that you're the other person, certainly, and going through their arguments. Um, and you might even imagine it as a, as a courtroom and you trade places, you argue for one side and then the other. So you even can think of it as a courtroom in your mind. Mm-hmm. I think it might help some people. seems like uh, people who have either self-selected by gravitating towards debate or taken mm-hmm. debate where they're forced mm-hmm. <laughs> to take opposite positions and counter arguments. Mm-hmm. Helpful as well. Yeah, this is classic to... Socrates, right? He would always <laughs> he would always just keep digging and arguing the point. Uh, and you could never pin him down on his beliefs because uh, he was always exploring the thought space. And Well, it's, it's, it's also, I mean, this practice just for people who are like, I don't want to be open-minded, but okay. And they're not going to explicitly say that. But if you want to be maximally persuasive, you know, Charles Darwin actually did this very, very well, what I'm about to say in the origin of the species is instead of straw manning, and I think Sam Harris has used this expression, uh, steel manning. So in other words, he would, he would try to anticipate the objections that people would have. And then he would not take the sort of weak and flimsy version of their argument. He would build it up and make it as compelling as possible before he would counter it in his own writing that's the intellectual the honest way to do it which is well, it's the inter- honest way it's also yeah. the very very effective way right yeah because then you're actually uh then you're actually arguing on the real merits not on what you not on the anecdote you picked or right. the piece mean, of it that you picked to attack so neil strauss is an eight-time new york times best-selling author he's been on the podcast but he said every time he edits his own work first he edits for himself so he keeps he wants to keep it interesting fun for himself second he edits for his fans mm-hmm. make sure everything is clear and then he edits for his haters 
<laughs> so that he can steal man and bulletproof things mm -hmm. to the extent possible. Twitter's taught me that. I mean, you have got 160 characters. Everything you say, 140 most of the time, everything you say will be taken out of context and oh, yeah. used to attack you. Um, so you really just have to boil it down. You, you, have, uh -huh. to, you have to hone it. Um, and uh, I tweet mainly because it helps me clarify my own thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite the exercise, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the accidental limit from text messaging days turned out to be a huge bonus for, for Twitter. Um, yeah, I mean, so just kind of moving moving uh, on a little bit, there, there are these other little phrases you've coined that um, help me crystallize my own thoughts. So there's a, there's a class of things that people seem to worry a lot about these days, whether it's an asteroid hitting the earth or... Um, you know, uh, apoc apocalyptic scenarios, floods, Skynet, uh, Skynet, mm -hmm. uh, AI, you know, let's just say even like near-term climate change predictions. Like I think we're all supposed to be underwater by 2020 or something, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but there, there's definitely a class of people who will take anything on the internet and blow it out of proportion. Sometimes mm -hmm. it can be a warning. Sometimes it can be good. Sometimes it can be bad. Like the general AI thing is another one of these. And you summarize this whole class of um, statements under what I thought was a brilliant uh, little moniker, Pascal Scams. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and where does that come from? So that comes from Pascal's wager. Um, and it can be applied to any, any um, claim that there's an infinite or very large reward or punishment um, or outcome of positive or negative nature. And the argument goes that even if it's very improbable, because this this reward or outcome is so large, you should pay attention to it. Right. And Pascal originally basically said, you have to believe in God because just in case, because if you're right, wrong, you're case, screwed yeah. for eternity. Right. Yeah, yeah, if yeah, God yeah. doesn't exist, who cares? Right. If God does exist and you don't believe. Exactly. So you should believe. Yeah. That was the argument. The basic flaw in this kind of thing is there is an infinite number of, of, of infinite outcomes. If you expand your space to right. infinity, there's, there's an infinite number of things that can happen. So you can't, the, the odds of any one of them happening are infinitesimal. Right. So you don't get a large expected value when you multiply infinite by infinitesimal. It's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, some undefined thing you can't really reason about. But, um, and, but people do anyway. But people try anyway. So they, they say, well, even, you know, we, so this precautionary principle kind of stuff, um, you can only take it so far. Um, and the other problem with improbable things is there are error bars on the probability. You don't know if it's, you know, one in a billion or one in, in you know, quadrillions or something. So right there, that changes your expected value many orders of magnitude. And usually, you know, people are trying to get attention and so forth or, you know, they have a job that depends on um, scaring you. And they're trying to uh, they're trying to make you believe the probability is higher. Yeah, to use Nassim Taleb's language, uh, and you should definitely get him on the podcast at some point. By the way, <laughs> I, it, that's that I can do. That should happen. I've had dinner with him a few times. I so. think that would be highly entertaining. I would, oh yes, I, would, I oh, want yes. a front row seat on that. Oh, one. Yes, it would be entertaining. Um, but it, to use Taleb's language, you know, some black swan is likely to happen, but any particular black swan is very unlikely to happen. Right. And so people are just trying to scare you with a particular black swan, and mm -hmm. because it can end your world, even infinitesimal probability has to be taken seriously. And you can waste your entire life worrying about these things, whether it's suitcase nukes or, um, you know, another financial crisis or um, the world exploding or imploding or cooling off or whatever. Now, just to just to touch back on the black swan, though, Nassim and I first met, if you can imagine the circumstances, the day that 
Lehman Brothers officially sort of imploded, right? Highly improbable, at least if you're looking back sort of a few years prior. And he has done very, very well financially by not betting on all black swans, but betting on a few select black swans and bleeding in small chips for long periods of time before occasionally having some type of windfall like that, right? So in when you're considering some of these improbable events, how do you decide which to hedge by certain behaviors or not? For instance, in San Francisco, the the I've really went deep and did training with the police department and fire department for uh, disaster response, right? Looking at the potential consequences of, say, a uh, high magnitude earthquake. And it's like, okay, it probably makes sense for me to spend a hundred bucks on Instacart and just get a When in reality, get, you probably get, just trip on your stairwell and bump well, your head. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's more likely. But the point I'm making is like you, most people have a fire extinguisher in their kitchen that they will never use, right? You wear your seatbelt, mm-hmm. but you've probably never been in a high impact collision. So there are certain classes that are low cost, very easy yeah. in terms of preventative. So how do you think about, how do you, how do you personally think about this? Right. I mean, but uh, an auto wreck's not an no, that's no, not highly improbable. That's outcome. not that's, that's uh, something happens to a lot of people. It's not an asteroid right, right, yeah, destroying yeah, yeah. The, the planet. It's a probability thing. Right? Yeah, where where is it on the probability spectrum? Is it uh, if it's one out of ten thousand, you know, you should probably worry about it or at least take basic precautions. If it could, if it has never happened yet, but could happen and would wipe out all of humanity or like once a generation, then it's sort of in the sphere where you just can't think about it or you'll just go insane. Right, right. Well, like taking a personal... <laughs> a lot of people do go insane. You know, <laughs> they, taking they a do. personal precaution on a magnitude 10 quake in San Francisco, it could happen. The odds are low, but it could happen. Um, you could keep that fire extinguisher around. You could add some water. You could add some things, but you know, you're, the building you're in will just collapse on you anyway. So, um. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, there's... The <laughs> well, the, the extreme example of this, the, the one that, uh, you know, a lot of people in our social circle are constantly peddling is a singularity example. It's a very seductive <laughs> one. You know, even Elon Musk, who's otherwise absolutely brilliant, seems to be taken in by it. And, uh, and you know, I give him credit for for worrying about it and thinking it through and so on. But it's just another one of these Pascal scams, it seems mm. like. Well, can, yeah. can I come back to that just yeah. because I know we're going to, we're, we're about to like really <laughs> the smack rival. the pinata with this. Uh, <laughs> Hornet's nest. <laughs> or, or Yeah, exactly. It's not full of candy. I don't know. It depends, I guess, on how you go about it. But I, before we get there, Nick, is there anything that you worry about that many other people don't worry about? Things I worry about that many other people don't. I don't know. People worry about so many things. Um, <laughs> no, no, they but, do. But. but I mean, people worry about privacy, but that seems to be going the wrong direction anyway. Um, you talked about the singularity. I heard somebody coin the phrase, I forgot who it was, creepularity that we're slowly life is getting creepier and creepier as more strangers are, are peering in on more and more <laughs> personal parts of our lives. So I worry about that. Got it. I do, do you, Podcast won't help. <laughs> do you take Do you take preventative any particular preventative measures that other people might find helpful? I do, but a lot of them are security through obscurity, so I can't. I got it. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> uh, all right. So singularity uh, lead the way, Naval. Actually, before we get into that, like I think the privacy issue is a really interesting one because physical privacy is being utterly destroyed. And I don't think people realize the extent to which it's going away because cameras are essentially ubiquitous and face wreck and um, everyone can track everything. Except 
privacy is possible in one realm where it wasn't possible before, which is digital privacy. And that's encryption. That's the story of blockchains and, and blockchain computers. Um, blockchain computers can enable digital privacy to a level that you just couldn't get otherwise. Um, so one of the sets of things we didn't talk about is things like Zcash and Monero and mm -hmm. uh, other blockchains that are all about privacy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to touch on that at all. Yeah, there are a couple. Um, so you can achieve, because Bitcoin doesn't require identity, you can achieve some minimal amount of uh, privacy. But um, once they track, you know, go to, go to the, again, the Bitcoin fiat exchange, they can tie the address to an identity um, that way and uh, trace it back. And there are yeah, some so minimal... Basically, if you buy on an exchange, they'll know what account that it the money was sent to or the coins were sent to and then every time the coins move someone can analyze the blockchain because they have a copy too they can say it went from account x to account y account y to account z and they might lose track use somewhere along the way but uh, i i even heard someone say that law enforcement is starting to refer to uh bitcoin as prosecution futures <laughs> because <laughs> sometime in the future they will be able to unwind that transaction it'll be like who was doing be what. like uh, analyzing lance armstrong's blood 10 years later. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah. no, we do have that. Yeah, blood. we still have the copy, and now the technology's gotten better. <laughs> right. Prosecution futures. A guy named David Chaum um, invented mixes, and applying a mixing and blinding and applying this technique to money. Um, Tor is a version of applying it to communications, but uh, applying this to money. So um, you can do a little bit of um, mixing or tumbling in Bitcoin, but Monero, you can do it quite a bit better. And then Zcash has an even more advanced um, privacy features. Mm. So. Yeah, essentially, the uh, Monero uh, and I don't want to. The Monero community is very acidic, they, they, and they fight the Zcash community, so they get into battles with each other. But uh, there are different uh, approaches. Like one approach is. I'm doing a transaction and there are five other people doing a transaction. We all pool our transactions together. And then, so someone who's trying to analyze the blockchain will just see that five transactions were done and these were five participants, but you've lost, they can't tell what went to whom. And something like Zcash takes it a step further and just the entire ledger is opaque. Like it's all cryptographically protected. You can't tell who exchanged what. And there are these crazy complicated proofs that go into proving who still has what money. Um, and in theory, Zcash is much, is very private. It's sort of the extreme edge of privacy, but it's computationally extremely expensive and it's brand new cryptography, which hasn't yet withstood the test of time. What makes a particular currency appreciate in value? I know this is probably a stupid sounding question, but I guess there's, because on one hand you have these nuanced sort of technological features, right? So someone might focus or say as a particular currency might focus more on privacy and then another might focus more on X, Y, and Z. Then you have supply and demand, right? If, uh, Kim Car if Kim Kardashian gets up tomorrow morning and decides that she's read a lot about Bitcoin and wants to Instagram about it for the next 10 days straight, I would imagine that would have an impact on prices. I, th I think you can look at a framework of, you can say, first of all, is this doing something novel and useful? Like, is this, first of all, is this useful? Um, is privacy useful? Is computation useful? Is exchanging money useful? Then you can say, is this the right technology solution? Because there's probably 20 other blockchains competing for it. Then is it being adopted? Is there a network effect? Do people have in their wallets? Is the infrastructure exists? Are they using it? 
uh, and then supply and demand. And, and that gets gamed a lot. Sometimes the developers of these coins are pumping out more coins in the background. You don't know where they reserve the right you have to read the source code to figure it out. So that's why investing in some of these extreme uh, so-called altcoins or app coins is, is very scary. Um, but there are other applications coming up that are really interesting. So there's like a one coming out called Filecoin, um, where I'm a small investor, so disclaimer. But uh, there are others, this storage, storage and others like that also, that are basically trying to create a network of distributed computers that will do storage for you. So instead of uploading your file to Dropbox or Amazon, um, you can upload massive files into these distributed storage networks that will take your data, encrypt it, split it across thousands of machines, and then they'll test to make sure your file is still available in the network if you ever need it back. And then you'll pay people in the coin. Um, and so people who you don't know, grandmothers in India, might be holding a piece of your file and waiting to serve it back to you when you need it uh, as a backup or just for storage or serving. Um, and you'll be paying them fully anonymously and from far away and, and the whole transaction is handled to the network. Um, there's another one called Blockstack, which is building an infrastructure for the decentralized internet, including domain names, uh, name serving uh, done in a distributed fashion. Today, all the name servers are controlled by ICANN and VeriSign and so on. But what if you could split that out amongst a distributed network of computers and you could pay people in coin uh, on the network for, for doing that? So these kinds of applications are coming up. And for each one of these, you look at like, is it novel? Is it useful? What's the competition? Is the code secure? Are the developers scammers? Are there backdoors? What's the supply and demand? So it's still completely wild west, which is both the opportunity and the terror. Of it. I mean, I think the average person who's investing in coins uh, on most of them is probably going to lose their shirts over a long enough period of time because the scammers are really sophisticated. Uh, but I think the really smart people who know what they're doing and maybe get a little bit lucky are going to make generational fortunes. Nick, what are your thoughts on singularity? <laughs> so, well, I mean, well, getting back to Pascal. I was going, I was going to try yeah. to do something clever with generations, but I was like, you know what? <laughs> I, I can do this. A lot of the I, I, ICOs are scams. And Pascal scams are these big scams where like you can't calculate the probabilities because you're dealing with affinities. And the most recent of the Pascal scams that's making the rounds is the singularity movement. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the, the idea of the singularities, they've seen this exponential growth in computer resources and the fact that computers are outstripping humans. And then they sort of impute from that that, and you can also see computers take over, um, you know, things that used to be considered a sign of intelligence to be able to add and subtract quickly. And now computers can do that billions of times faster than humans. So, and, and the gap keeps growing and growing. Once you computer can do something, the gap's just going to keep growing and growing. But the idea of the singularity uh, tends to be that you get a general intelligence. Like at, at some point, computers can do everything humans can do. And all of a sudden, you know, very quickly, they can do it faster and faster and faster. They start designing improved versions of themselves. And it's a runaway effect. And humans soon become obsolete. And, or prey for and, terminators and, and whatever. And we can't be. predict. And so one of the, one of the uh, conceits is the idea that, oh, we'll no longer be able to predict the future. Um, the thing is, that's that's basically true today for a lot of things. Yeah. You can't, you know, you know, the stock market's an ongoing running singularity. You can't predict day to day. If you could, you could make a fortune. So yeah, you laid out a lot of arguments against it. I mean, another one is just what is this general intelligence thing? Like humans are highly adapted to specialized machines, and every other animal that's around today, including the cockroach, is just as evolved as we are. It's just different fitness functions, and so it has a different concept of intelligence that it needs to survive. 
And machine intelligence that we've developed so far is extremely specialized. So there probably is no such thing as general intelligence. Uh, instead, what we have is machines that are brilliant at calculation, but terrible at other things. And now they're getting brilliant at face recognition, but that doesn't mean they're going to be really great at me solving my next debate with my wife. <laughs> right? Well, and something else you touched on that uh, I appreciated, and as a non scientist, non-engineer who sometimes pretends to do such in physical performance and whatnot. Uh, quote, there is, as Feynman said, it's Richard Feynman. Everybody should read, uh, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. But I digress. There is, as Feynman said, quote, plenty of room at the bottom, end quote, but it is by no means infinite given actual demonstrated physics. That means all growth curves that look exponential or more in the short run turn over and become S-curves or similar in the long run unless we discover physics that we do not now know as information data processing under physics as we know it are limited by the number of particles we have access to. And that in turn can only increase in the long run by at most a cubic polynomial uh, and probably much less than that since space is mostly empty. It seems underlying the singularity is the assumption that exponential continues right. to right. be exponential indefinitely. Right. I mean, we've had exponential growth for computers for most of the last century. Yep. And so we have this vast resources that I've already talked about to take advantage of. But the future, you're going to face these physics limits, you know, limits on the heat that your circuits give out. They turn into toasters um, <laughs> and and so forth. So, um, yeah, and it's the limit set by quantum mechanics. And we're we've reached that in some I, I don't think Moore's law really applies to transistors necessarily anymore. The original Moore's law about the number of transistors, I think that's already... Yeah, there's the physical limits of how far transistors can go. Then there's a question of are transistors even the right medium? Like maybe to exhibit our kind, our variation of specialized intelligence, it needs to be on wetware, like it needs to be on tissue. And we have not yet gotten to growing brain tissue and then programming it. That's a long ways off. Um, and then you have to deal with the fact that our brains evolve in, or our intelligence evolves in reaction to our environment. And even genetic algorithms evolve in reaction to fitness functions. So you, not only would you have to create a computer that could run on our tissue to, inhibit, to exhibit our kind of intelligence, but then you would also have to put it in our kind of environment and its rate of learning would be limited by what inputs our environment can provide. Right. And if you're gonna go do all that work, then just have a baby, it takes nine months and we already know how to do it <laughs> we already and know save yourself that, a lot yeah. of time. Well, on that point related to environment, this is, uh, and, and you've written quite a bit on this, but I underlined one portion, quote, so these evolutionary techniques and other machine learning techniques are, are often interesting and useful, but the, the severely limited ability of computers to simulate most real-world phenomena means that no runway is in store, just potentially much more incremental improvements, which will, be, which will be much greater in simulable arenas and much smaller in others, and will slowly improve as the accuracy and completeness of our simulations slowly improves, just to underscore what you just said. You need access to the environment or the ability to create. Right. There's also a probabilistic argument against general intelligence, which is the universe is so vast and so large that if general, it's, it's the same, it's the same people who make the general intelligence argument also make the, we're living in a simulation argument. Well, they kind of both can't be true because if we're living in a simulation, uh, then that means that at some point we already 
invented a general intelligence. Like when you get the technological capability to invent a simulation of this complexity, um, probabilistically, and you believe general intelligence are possible it, through the mechanism described in the singularity, then we probably already hit that along the way. So that means that whatever that general AI is already exists and we're just living inside its sim. Mm -hmm. So why do we have to worry about it suddenly emerging here and then killing us all? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, so the people yeah. who are both holding the simulation belief, hypothesis in their head and the singularity being around the corner in their head are sort of at a deep level contradicting themselves. Well, particularly if, I don't know, I guess the, <laughs> so the simulation, I wish we had Sam Harris here to talk about, I don't know why I've mentioned him so many times, just talk about free will. He isn't, he's, he's interesting to talk to about that. But the, the idea that something would come to be that is a thousand, a million times, a billion times more generalizably intelligent than we are and their priority would be killing us yeah it's just like my 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 directive in life being running around killing cockroaches it's like no right. they're cockroaches i don't really <laughs> care so much about them but it seems odd that that would yeah be, i think that uh, that movie her priority. actually did it pretty well which is you know when the general ai evolved in that movie it just left yeah yeah <laughs> it didn't care about this world at all <laughs> uh so Naval, you've, you've mentioned a bunch of things you're not worried about. I'm, I'm curious to ask you the same question I asked Nick, which is what are the things that occupy your mind more than perhaps other folks or many other people? I, I try to keep a very low level of mental surface activity mm -hmm. for anything other than whatever I'm directly dealing with in the moment. And one of the ways I'm trying to do that is by stripping away layers of identity. So I don't want to overly identify as Indian or American or libertarian or, or Democrat or any of those kinds of things, because one that sort of keeps me from actually engaging in thinking as I need to, it's all preconceived beliefs. It makes me more defensive uh, because once you, the reason you can't talk about politics with anybody is because it attacks their identity at a core level. Mm -hmm. uh, every tweet I put out, I now know that even if I attack a general class of uh, activity, all the people who are engaged in that activity will respond. So like I put out a tweet about how you want to, you know, value investing and venture investing are both long-term investing and trading is just a quick get rich quick scheme, which doesn't work. And so of course, all the people who got really angry about that, I just clicked through the bio and sure enough, they're traders. Like that, that's what they do. They trade all the time for Wall Street and that's how they make a living. So if you attack someone's identity, you shut down all conversation with them. That's why politi political conversations don't work. So conversely, if you want to be rational and open-minded, you should not have an identity. And the less of an identity you can absorb, uh, can adopt the better. How do you train yourself to identify less as... Indian as X as Y. Human consistency bias is a powerful thing. So just when someone asks you, are you a libertarian? Just say, I'm not anything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if they say like religious, you know, they, like don't say anything. Like, like Krishnamurti is one of my favorite philosophers. When he met the Pope, uh, you know, the the Pope said to him like, you know, I'm I'm Pope, blah, 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 you know, from this lineage and so on. Who are you? And Krishnamurti just said, I'm nobody, yeah. right? But he was being serious. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't even know what I am. I'm just this thing that's here right now in this environment reacting to the inputs from the environment according to my conditioning. And I'm trying to be as unconditioned as possible. By the way, that's why my, uh, my Twitter, um, uh, my Twitter uh, avatar is like a sketch of a human face. Cause it's trying to remind me to be unconditioned. You don't want to be over conditioned and you don't want to be overly strong with your identity. You guys mentioned Twitter earlier. So one of the things that you may have noticed, I do this, but I routinely put out things on Twitter and Facebook that I use to call my audience of, hypersensitive 
people or that I know will just kick the hornet's nest enough to force people to self-select one way or the other. Yeah. And I have to be careful not to then accidentally create a group where they all have sort of group uh, think, hom- yeah. exactly right. hom- homogeneous but you want to group prune, think. You want to prune the trees in the forest. I want to prune bit. the trees a little bit, but also what that does is uh, it gives me more f- I, f- I perceive having more freedom of speech or willingness to speak my mind because I'm progressively cr- uh, creating less and less of a reputation to protect. Does that make yeah. any sense? No, that's right. Yeah. I, 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 I do the exact same thing, which is I would say every, every couple of months, my tweet stream gets a little edgier, <laughs> right? As I've sort of pushed out the people who can't deal with what I'm saying uh, and I've muted them or blocked them or just they've unfollowed me or what have you. Um, and I didn't used to block, but now I've had to, like, it's just because there's always somebody who'll straw man, whatever you're saying, get outraged and try and start a fire and assemble a mob around it to like burn you at the stake. Uh, and unfortunately a lot of the best people on Twitter have left because of that issue, right? Like P Marco probably being the most famous, but, uh, you know, you can put out a hundred tweets a day and you say one thing wrong in one of them and they're trying to burn you at the stake. Oh, it's always the most controversial ones of mine that get on, put on Reddit and spread beyond Absolutely. Twitter. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. P marker for those interested. That's Mark Andreessen. I, th- I think this is a general phenomenon where society has not yet figured out how to deal with social media. I think like in my kids' generation, they'll be saying all kinds of crazy things on Twitter and nobody will care. Nobody will lose a job over it. Nobody will get worked up over it because everyone was saying everything crazy all the time. But right now, when we're transitioning from a world of our thoughts being private to our thoughts being public, people are still getting outraged. But uh, to me, like the people who get outraged are sort of the most anachronistic, least intelligent members of society. And I'm happy to leave them behind. The more easily outraged you are, the less I want to have to do with you. Be be gone. If you think words can hurt you, you're going to live in a world of misery and pain your entire life. So on that note, I'd like to wrap, just kidding. (laughs) uh, So so I want to gear shift for a second and ask uh, a few questions uh, of you, Nick, that are not directly related to, they might be, they might edge into it, but not directly related to, uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, the first is if people want to explore your blog and you have some very extensive writing, and where might you suggest they start? Is there a particular piece or a few pieces that might be a good diving in point for people? Yeah. So for blockchains and, and cryptocurrency and smart contracts, probably the two best ones, uh, money, blockchains, and social scalability is a recent blog post of mine. And then a somewhat older blog post called Dawn of Trustworthy Computing. What are some of the subjects that you enjoy exploring outside of the ones that we've already heard about in terms of the, we understand the the fascination with money, currency, law. What are other interests that might not be immediately evident to people if they're reading your blog? Yeah, and we also mentioned the origins of money. Origins big, of money. A big interest and related interest of mine. Um, and history in general, I read a lot of history. Any particular? Like economic and, and legal history, mm-hmm. mostly. Um, so, Are there any particular resources or books that you've enjoyed in that area? Um, so Alfred Crosby's The Columbian Exchange, which is basically what Jared Diamond ripped off when he wrote his book. <laughs> But Alfred Crosby wrote the original, better version. Oh, no, you just ruined Jared Diamond for me. <laughs> it turns out he was just a popular writer. Yeah, Jared Diamond's uh, hypothesis on what happened on Easter Island also turns out not... That's right, I've not, heard not hugely supported. Uh, 
not that yeah but yeah yeah, we all we all make our mistakes the uh one of the questions i ask guests on the podcast oftentimes is what books have you gifted the most to other people and i don't know if you have any that come to mind um so richard dawkins the selfish gene is is sort of on my essential everybody should read this list yeah definitely one of the classics Although Dawkins is getting outraged on the internet a lot these days. <laughs> he's he's good at... Not, uh, not the same kind of outrage. Courting outrage. Oh my God. I saw a uh, yeah, public speak uh, public talk of his in uh, Los Angeles not too long. It was, it was fantastic. But I was just like every given second, I'm like, I wonder if this room is going to explode. Like <laughs> not with outrage or applause, like literally explode. Uh, any other books that come to mind? And I mean, Matt Ridley's... Uh, written several good books on on evolution, social evolution, and a couple on genetic evolution as well. How do you spell his last name? Matt R I D L E Y. Oh, Ridley. Okay, got it. Yeah, I think three or four of my top twenty books of all time are all Ridley's: Rational Optimist, Genome, Red Queen, Origins of Virtue. Which is your favorite? Or if you had to recommend, or one, if you had to recommend one, Rational Optimist. Oh, he has Evolution of Everything, which I haven't uh, read yet. If you were teaching a, this is for you, Nick, if you were teaching a, let's call it a high school freshman class or seminar, could be on any topic, what would you teach? Hmm. Well, I just gave some lectures at my uh, honorary uh, doctorate university um, on related lectures on the origins of money and blockchains and cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. So to me, those are three closely related topics that I like to and how, how over what period of time did you teach that class? Or was oh, it those a handful were like of... hour-long lectures? So I tried to cram way too much into <laughs> what would you hope people would take from those lectures if they only remembered two or three things? Is there are there any core critical takeaways you would hope them? So money's not arbitrary. If you look at the history, origins of money, you see all sorts of different things, textiles and yap stones and this and that and so forth. But indeed it's not arbitrary. Um, they're very consistent, um, things like unforgeable costliness, the demand for scarce supply and the durability, people choosing durable objects. Um, so that, that sort of realizing that by reading that is partly what helped me figure out, yeah, you could do this in cyberspace as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so what does in your, in your life, what does money buy you? I know it may sound like an odd question. In in my life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not as much as one would have thought, because I, I find myself, um, consuming time to do things that I, I would, I would like to substitute money for, but can't, (laughs) I have to to take the time to do them anyway. So what, what drives you to write as much as you do? Well, partly that's what I want to do in life. Mm Mm-hmm. So you enjoy the process. Of I, I like the freedom of thought and stuff. And so I'd much rather sit at home thinking my own stuff and then, you know, thinking what my boss wants me to think. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are things you'd like to write about that you haven't had a chance to explore yet or that you have on deck? Um, so I've written some things about um, the Industrial Revolution that I have some unique thoughts on, but I'm so busy with other things I'll probably never get to. Um, and on what I call the Exploration Explosion, how how Europeans were able to go around the globe and, and uh, take over the world's trade routes and so forth, you know, after Columbus. So uh, there's all sorts of Top. Those those are two of my favorites, but there's there's plenty of others as well. I'll never have time to do. <laughs> can you can you give any teaser uh, snippets or 
concepts from the industrial revolution? Well, I don't, I don't know if this made it on the recording, but the hourglass was mentioned earlier is an underrated invention, this humble glass thing with sand in it. So Europe invented like the mechanical clock and which I think most people recognize as, a, as an important invention, but they also at the same time and not coincidentally that it happened at the same time, um, they invented the hourglass and the hourglass keeps, you know, time w between one hour and another. And then the, the clock, which at the beginning was only in the bell tower, you know, chimes the hour for the, the whole city. And so it's the hourglass that people would time their, you know, their activities with and so forth. And um, professors would time their lectures and people would, um, you know, agree to meet at certain times. And just that temporal coordination was happening quite a bit more in Europe than, than anywhere else. And they also turned it into a navigational technique called the uh, dead reckoning, where you would, you would, look at your knot slipping through the water and then you'd use the hourglass to measure the time. And then you would also use that hourglass to record the time, record when you made the measurement. And so you'd keep track, just dead reckoning of how far you're going. And that's a technique Columbus used and Magellan used and so forth. So that hourglass was used in all that stuff. And Underappreciated. Underappreciated, yeah. And there's some poor guy whose job it was to flip it every hour exactly yep. in the hour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> If you had uh, a gigantic billboard, could put anything on it, just a, a message to get out to millions of people or more, what would you potentially put on that? Does anything come to mind? A gigantic billboard. Well, um, the, the phrase Naval quoted me earlier, trusted third parties are security holes. <laughs> Anybody in the blockchain space, I would, I would like to get that in their head. <laughs> that, that's basically the key to the whole design, why the whole design is like it is and so forth. Naval, do you have any other questions before I wrap up with a few? No, I mean, I, I would just really encourage people to go read um, Nick's blog. He is a true polymath. He's written about stuff, um, as he mentioned, ranging from the hourglasses and clocks, the industrial revolution to blockchains, to um, law and policy and privacy and rights and singularity and freedoms and um, it, I, I just learned something every time I go to his blogs, I probably not finished about half the pieces on there. Um, and they're always, uh, highly inspirational and educational. Yeah. People often ask, I mean, listeners ask, uh, me a question related to the maxim that you hear in Silicon Valley a lot, which is you're the average of the five people you associate with most. What do I do if I don't have access to five people I want to be the average of? And the answer, or one of the answers is read choose your reading sources very wisely. And I, I would agree the depth and breadth of what you cover is really, really astonishing. Uh, my, so. my smartest uh, teachers, mentors, peers these days are all on Twitter and blogs and they're, it's, they're mostly autodidacts. Like they might have a, they're self-taught, right? Fancy word, but they might have uh, um, degrees and whatever, but reality, but the re reality is they're curious people. And the internet is the myth of the library of Alexandria writ large. Like you can find anything and everything. You can become an expert in anything. You can talk to anybody. Um, so I used to feel guilty about spending so much time on the internet, but now I don't. As long as I'm reading interesting things from the people that I think are really smart, what's the downside? Agreed. On Twitter, where can people say hello? What is your Twitter handle? Yeah, my Twitter handle is at Nick Sabo 4. Okay, and that's N-I-C-K. Mm-hmm. S Z. Yes. A B O the number four. Number four. Yeah. Very cool. Well, that I think about covers it for a, a first gathering. 
<laughs> at Gus and Naval. And uh, you can get a 25% discount on Naval coin if you go to tim.blog forward slash. No, I'm kidding. Uh, that is, that is hence. Prices are going up. Prices are going up. But wait, that's not all. Uh, we'll have hopefully more for you guys soon. This was a real blast. Thanks so much for the time, Nick. Uh, thank you. This is really fun. And Naval. Always a pleasure. Thank you for helping put this together. Thank you for having us. It's and, fantastic. And to everybody listening, we will have show notes, links to everything we mentioned, Nick's blog, books, as many resources as we can think up, probably Cryptocurrency 101, a handful of articles we'll recommend in sequence as well in the show notes. You can find those at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And that will take you to show notes for every other episode as well. And until next time, as always, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out, just go to 4hourworkweek.com. That's 4hourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Audible, which I've used for many, many years. I absolutely love audiobooks and they are one of my favorite ways to pass the time when I travel. I'm on the road all the time and Audible allows me to consume many more books than I possibly could otherwise. I have two audiobooks to recommend right off the bat. The first is perhaps my favorite audiobook of all time, and it's the only audiobook I've wanted to listen to twice in a row. The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. It's amazing, and you will thank me. There are a few different versions. I like the version that Neil narrates himself one of the most soothing voices of all time. The second book is Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, P-O-T-T-S, which had a huge impact on my life and formed the basis for a lot of what would later become the four-hour work week. So go to audible.com forward slash Tim and you can choose one of these two books or any of many, many other options. That could be books, magazines, and much more. As a listener of The Tim Ferriss Show, you can also access a free 30-day trial. Just go to audible.com forward slash Tim. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. So turn your travel or your commute into something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to audible.com forward slash Tim to start now and get your free 30-day trial. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Man, oh man, do a lot of listeners of this podcast and readers of mine love FreshBooks to the extent that I ended up meeting with the CEO not very long ago. Why are they so popular? Well, they are the number one cloud accounting software designed exclusively for self-employed professionals. That's many of you. And used by more than 10 million people. You can send invoices, track your time, and get paid very, very quickly, which suits the needs of a lot of freelancers, a lot of entrepreneurs, and beyond. You can take pictures of receipts. You can link your credit card and debit card so all the things you buy automatically appear in your FreshBooks in the right category. So on and so forth. Makes taxes easy, makes invoices easy, makes your life 
easier. And also, in fact, I recommend a PDF. Uh, they didn't ask me to read this part, by the way. They put together a PDF a while back uh, called Breaking the Time Barrier, subtitle How to Unlock Your True Earning Potential. So you can search for Breaking the Time Barrier. A lot of people ask me, how can I get a four hour work week with a service business? And the story in that ebook, it's PDF, is the short answer. It's really, really good. So I think you should also check that out. So Breaking the Time Barrier, check it out. But also, why not test out FreshBooks? Claim your 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com forward slash Tim and enter Tim Ferriss, two R's and two S's, in the how did you hear about us section. That sounds <laughs> like we're going to get very little tracking. That's a lot of work. But just go to freshbooks.com forward slash Tim and try it out because it is a very good product and I think you will find it simplifies your life. Enjoy. Enjoy. 